This is the thing with the Apple Watch. You have to turn everything off from every single device just so you can. Why do you, Habibi? To be modern. No, Habibi. Take yourself a nice watch. Man, I was never into watches. You know, I don't think you've reached the age yet. Give it another 20 years and then you're going to look at it. You're going, hmm. I have plenty of friends who are very into, uh, you know, watches and, you know, you know the, the, those sorts of... Um, how, do, how do I label it? Like that sort of um, finesse in life. Do you think it's, it's, it's something just because it's society dictated and watches? I feel like a lot of people like Porsche cars because other people like Porsche cars, you know Which what I mean? Which is sad. Yeah, I, I, but I feel like, especially like real watch lovers that go and like visit like a Swiss watch company and like sits there and just like stares. They're, those are far and few between. Nefsa Shekla is Porsche guys that go to exactly. the factory at Porsche and then just like. I think if, if you're going to be, you know, interested in that sort of thing, you should have a justification for it. You should understand, I'm going to get involved in <clears throat> Excuse me. Asif. Well, Asif. Uh, I'm, I'm, no, it's not. It's not the smoke. Yeah. I smoke too. Don't give me an ashtray. No, I'm good. Don't worry about it. Like I prefer cigars. So I was supposed to cigarettes. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. I'm out of my my stature. What kind of cigars do you normally smoke? Uh, my go-to are Romeo and Juliet's, but okay. I have smoked Olivia's and I've smoked other brands, but I like Romeo and Juliet's for their balance. There is a place um, in, in London, next time you're there, let me know and I'll take you. There's For a, sure. There's a shop there that has cigars from the 1970s, still sitting there. Beautiful. And not the any expensive mugga. We're talking about 35 BD, Shezekeda. From the 70s, 35 BD? Exactly. I've, I've, I've had one from the, I've had one from the, from the 80s and it, co- and it was a Romeo and Juliet and it costed me 40 BD. I mean, if it's from the 70s, it's costing you 40 BD, that's terrible appreciation on the cigar manufacturer's part. <laughs> well, you don't buy a full case. They already sell you single units, right? Oh, no. If it's a full case, and okay, I can see how that would be exactly. profitable in the long run. Exactly, exactly. But uh, they're delicious. They're absolutely delicious. And there's only few and far between in London where you can still smoke inside, you know? I mean, I think what differentiates cigarette from a cigar is the experience of smoking a cigar because if you're smoking that cigar in a place that is designed and you know uh, catered to that atmosphere with mm. the music and the art and the service and you know the conversation and the company interesting, interesting. that is what differentiates a cigar from a cigarette in my opinion um, I would prefer that over shisha or anything else I mean, shisha aren't like what they used to be, you know, especially if, if you ask my uncle, you know, how shisha was in the 70s with Shazikina, they would tell you, <laughs> there was none of that fancy stuff. <laughs> what was it? He told me it was just bland tobacco and it tasted like, like, like horrible, horrible, horrible. <laughs> and he said, I, he didn't understand why anyone in his family put himself through with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And even the shisha design, he said, it didn't look anything like, like we have today. Was it like Gedu? Yeah, something yeah. like that. I mean, I mean, today, a lot of people are going to give you flack for saying, oh, women shouldn't be smoking shisha or whatever. And yet back in the day, it was commonplace and tolerated. And you can see that. Um, I'm not saying you should smoke. I'm not encouraging smoking. It will give you cancer. But like, um, 
the 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 dual standards of it. It's like okay, if the guy gets cancer, the hell with him. <laughs> if she gets cancer, oh no, Miskina. I mean, it it's a pastime that you have the freedom to partake in if you want to. If you don't want to, I I remember looking at the statistic, and I might be incorrect, but I think it's about five percent. It increases your chances of getting lung cancer by five percent. Really? That's it, it, that's all it is. And at that nahya, I mean, I tr- I'm a true believer that if it's your time to die, it's your time to die. I don't think you really have any option in that sense. You know, if you get into a car, it's not if somebody hits you across the side. That's, it's your time. I, I don't believe you have any <laughs> a decision into it. I mean, yeah, I can, I can see, you know, in, a, in an accident like that, you know, something could happen. I can cuss, right? Hmm. Okay. Of course, I don't give a shit. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Habibi, you get the edit, so if you want something to be removed, you tell us, and khalas. So yeah, it's, okay. we have super candid. The original footage we delete because we don't have the storage anyways for it. We've <laughs> <laughs> got the terabyte deleted <laughs> nah, khalas, why is it? It doesn't work for us. I mean, what is it? Like a 40 terabyte SSD is like $6,000? Something like that, yeah. And, and how, how big is one of these files? Uh, Danny, for the full, huh? 300 GB. Per camera? Yeah. So about a terabyte then. A terabyte per episode? Per episode. I feel very valuable now. <laughs> <laughs> you should, you should, you should. <laughs> I'm telling you, buddy. It's, storage is crazy at the moment. Anything doing with data at the moment is, is a nightmare. It's absolutely a nightmare. How did you, so how did you get into a, a, a politics realm? Did you always want to be a politician? You always felt like, you know what? I mean, yes and no. I mean, growing up, every Arab family, I don't care where you're from, you're from Bahrain, Morocco, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Qatar, Marat. every Arab family is going to have that one person in the family, probably your dad, your uncle, who's going to sit there every single Friday and going to be like, okay, guys, this is what's happening. The Houthis are doing this. The Christians are doing this. This is going to happen. Lebanon is this and this and this. And then you go to a completely separate house and there's that other guy who's basically the counterweight for that person saying the exact opposite things. No, 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 no. The Houthis are doing that. The Christians are doing this and then da, 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 da. So the, polit- the politics, the political exposure that all of us get as little kids is always there. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, can you or, or am I just reaching out right here? No, no, no. My family is from Saudi, yeah? so uh, we're guess. from Anats. And Jubail. And my dad, you know, he, he became a, a tribal leader and he was like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> he resigned as quickly as he could and said, I don't want the responsibility. <laughs> And he told me, you know, back in, even in the early, late 80s, early 90s, he was even saying to me, Shof, if you hit a guy on the road with Sayyar in Hashu, in your cousin, your uncle's house, uh, because they'll kill you. There's, <laughs> yeah, and he, in that time in, in Hanets, there was no police. You know, this was, this was as Bedou as Bedou gets. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a different world. It was a very, very different world. And imagine civilization has now reached Linas, well, well, I think so. I mean, uh, can you pass me my phone? I always show this to more Westerners than Arabs. And it's a picture of my great-grandfather. Just to give him the semblance of, of our culture and where we've been and where we got to. And, yeah, sorry, let me find you the photo. Uh, I love pictures like these. I, it shows how far we've come. Yeah, exactly. Because for Westerners, they never really understand 
الاختلاف thinking because this was my great grandfather at one point well this is your great grandfather yeah 1936 it says it even at the bottom and in his own life in his own lifetime he shot at an airplane thinking it was any bird thinking it was any akil and in his lifetime was riding on an airplane think about that that mental huge shift in my dad's lifetime he grew up without without electricity in his part of town no that's amazing and it, it, that's absolutely amazing i i i yani yeah, when he was waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning just because of humidity and the heat yeah yeah <laughs> that sounds like what happens if someone in the house decides to turn off the ac Mackin fish back there was no windows or anything back then in those uh, because they were almost like clay mats I mean not clay mats I mean a lot of them stayed in tents as well because they were constantly traveling and he was telling me like stories of walking in the desert and all kinds of stuff like that I remember back I th- back in the day I heard that the way they built houses was that they built them with something called uh, barjil mm-hmm. where the wind would come th- in through the sea and cool the the house naturally and organically and then there's now modern ways of trying to do it as opposed to using air conditioning it's like to you know conserve and you know reduce and all that which is which is weird considering we have a huge gas pile of gas <laughs> and oil so it's not exactly a big worry on our part i mean we've got what another 200 years worth of oil left before we really have to start worrying <laughs> if if the demand holds up yeah because as i can see it now the whole world is trying to transition away from you know oil and gas and fossil fuels and i can understand why you know climate change trying to limit the increase from 1.5 degrees to or 2 degrees or whatever the, the the metric was so on that metric it makes sense but on the other hand every single way of trying to reduce you know consumption of fossil fuels and go over to you know hydrocarbon resources or other renewable sources like high you know hydrogen or uh, solar, solar wind, wind water whatever. whatever all those are less efficient than oil and gas because oil and gas can be used in the production of so many different goods like it's not just petrol for your car it's plastic it's um like a whole ton of uh, construction materials etc 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 so like the most basic thing your plastic straw your your paper cup in some way shape or form oil and gas was used in its production so when you say you want to cut off oil and gas completely it makes absolutely no sense but on absolutely. the other hand you can't rely on that forever so you need to find that balance and from what i understand Saudi Arabia is doing a lot of research on how to recalibrate that to make sure that the oil and gas is able to be used in a way that makes economic and environmental sense which i think is a really great initiative it has to happen uh, you know you can't have an economy surviving on simply one sector yeah you know i mean sabic and aramco is really the two largest industries in syria and it's not realistic to to have a country operating on just two sectors on two exactly, sectors right exactly. so they've they've really put a lot of emphasis and push on diversifying their economy um they're having some great farms as well which is still primary but yeah. you know it's something uh financially from it they don't really they're trying to to increase their tertiary sector with with forcing companies to have headquarters in riyadh if you want to operate in sardia these are all things that they're trying to do i i find it very interesting with mbs who recently said that he wants to see a european union style in the middle east oh i'd love that 
And I mean, he, he said it on stage, he even included Iran and Yemen, which I was like, wow. And mashallah And I think that's the, the, the path forward. Uh, the way I look at the world, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, is that it's becoming more and more about bigger players. You know, you've got the U.S. versus Russia, China versus Russia and the U.S. And then you've got the tiny, big, tiny, tiny country called Europe <laughs> who still can't make decisions on, on what they want to be. I mean, I, I don't think you're wrong on that one. I think, uh, I think what MBS said, he wants the Middle East to be the next Europe. And now thinking back when he said it, it made perfect sense. But now you've got the biggest crisis since World War II going in Europe right now which is the Ukraine war. And it's, I mean, it's, it's sad to see that a continent that has had a lot of peace and stability, relatively speaking, you know, as aside from like a world war or whatever, um, going through that. But at the end of the day, it's all real politic interest. And I can see how these things can happen in multiple places. It's not something that's endemic to Europe. Europe is not better than anywhere else where they're gonna have peace and prosperity forever. And nor is the Middle East worse off than anyone else where we're gonna have war and suffering forever. So when the idea is proposed that we can have something like a European Union in the Middle East, particularly in the Gulf, I welcome that, I would love that. I would love for me to be able to travel to Saudi Arabia without having to show my CPR. I would love to have complete equality and movement and and goods and 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 you know uh, business rights and legal rights and all that between us all because at the end of the day i think what makes us similar is much greater and much you know bigger than what makes us different i i mean we're way more similar than europeans i mean exactly. we speak the same language we have the same religion we're the same kinds of people <laughs> we have the same families exactly so it's 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 crazy to think that we have that diversity like the french and the germans or the exactly, spanish or exactly. whatever so i i totally with you 100 percent. i think that with the russian issue i think it's fascinating um simply because in 2014 when they axed i think what was it crimea yeah, uh, no one cared. No, 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 one, no one. Like I never. I remember 2014. I don't remember anyone saying like, "Ooh, those Russians." <laughs> I mean, I remember the media did stir it up a bit, but it wasn't a full-scale invasion. It was like, "Okay, we're going to take this one part of of, of Ukraine, which is Crimea." And I remember the memes were all like Crimea River. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it it is a violation of sovereignty at that point in time, but they didn't escalate. Now they've recognized independent polities within Ukraine that they've been infiltrating since before the war. And then those representatives of those quote-unquote puppet states have decided to you know, sign on to treaties with the Russian Federation in an attempt to incorporate within the Russian Federation. And they've done that in Georgia as well, I think in the Akhbaz region. So this policy of Russian, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to say westward expansion but the 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 uh, restoration of russian influence in West, in eastern europe it's not a new thing mm. but this is perhaps the largest scale um attempt at it i mean you, you bring up an, an interesting idea the russians counter argument to that was always the nato the nato exactly. argument exactly. they're saying listen we were promised that nato would would stay by that line you've crossed it a long time ago and uh, when I'm saying you, I mean collectively you from the Western perspective. Um, so that's their their political argument of, of why they're they're trying to carry on their sovereignty. Um, I don't I don't think Putin is trying to resuscitate the USSR 
I, I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that he's sitting there going, hmm. <laughs> it was such a great system. And he's got, you know, he's got his political cronies, be it uh, Kazakhstan, uh, who are fantastically great friends with him, you know, gifting each other dogs all the time. Uzbekistan as well, also very good friends with him. And what I'm going to say to that is that Russia does have a counter to NATO. It's called CENTO. I think it's the central... Uh, yes. Central national something. But mm. it's called CENTO. They include, you know, I think it's Kazakhstan and some of the other Eastern European... Eastern... Eastern Bloc. Eastern Europe. Asian states. So not China, but like the countries that are west of China, but east of us. Mm. So that sort of area. Uh, it is very similar to NATO in terms of you know, connected defense and all that. Recently they had, I think it was in Kazakhstan where they had protests and uh, the Russian Federation you know, got involved in an attempt to control or contain those protests in favor of the existing government there. Um, and at the same time, Putin has repeatedly said that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Interesting. But is it the greatest tragedy from a perspective of saying, you know, from, from the famine and the death that it caused? Or is he saying from a power vacuum? That is something that I think Putin can answer. Yeah, that's an intent question, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. I think the collapse of the Soviet Union did cause a lot of infighting and strife in the Balkans, uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia, for example. Mm, mm. And I think that there was a security vacuum. I think NATO did try to you know, fill that security vacuum and they did it in a way whereby sovereign states there decided to join NATO. Um, I cannot comment on the intent of NATO, I cannot comment on the intent not. of Russia. <laughs> <Who can? laughs> um, what I can say is that what's happening now is unprecedented in terms of um, conflict in Europe ever since the Second World War, which is a lot to say. It's, it's interesting that you, you say that. I remember... I don't remember which political leader, but I think it was from either Poland. No, it wasn't Poland. I'll, I'll, it'll come to me in a second. One, one of the former prime ministers of a European country recently said the European Union is the only chance for peace within Europe. Because prior to that, it was always a state of conflict. You can go back almost a thousand years, and there was always some sort of war going on in Europe. You can even go further back, and you can have the Roman Empire, <laughs> who was trying to aggressive expansion in Europe. So, I mean... There is there is truth to that. It's it's it that that's that subsect of of the nations or continent was always been some sort of inner fighting or issue, um, whether it was Russia versus Prussia, whether, <laughs> you know whether it was the Ottoman Empire going all the way into into I think where did they stop Norway. No, the Ottoman Empire, I think they tried multiple times to get to Vienna. But yeah, got there. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they stopped. It's, are, they have statues of this guy in Vienna who, who managed to, to, to infiltrate the Ottoman ranks of the military and managed to poison water or something like that. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, <laughs> they celebrate him as a war hero. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, every culture is going to have that one guy who did something and now that's their hero. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Usually it's the guy who defended, a guy who conquered. Um, but yeah, it's all perspective. I think if you look at it from the Ottoman perspective, they'd probably say, oh, that guy, he's... How you want, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's it's uh, the most interesting person to me that I find that when I have com conversations or discussions is is um, Khan. 
the the man who who managed to have five percent of his DNA in almost all Asians. Oh, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> I find him so interesting because his his death toll number is something like forty million people in a time without projectiles. <laughs> he was putting real numbers on that board. <laughs> this guy went hand over foot. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously. He, he was like, "Listen, I don't care about anything. I'm <laughs> I'm going to etch a sketch in history." I'm, I feel like the guy was like, "Okay, if you don't have my DNA, stand to the right. Yeah. If you do have my DNA, stand to the left. If you'd like to receive my DNA, stand, stand in, in the, the middle." middle. <laughs> yeah. He had something like four hundred wives. I think it's something like that. Mashallah, Ali. I, I don't think the concept of matrimony meant a lot to this man. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, I mean, the empire of Khan was a super interesting. It was it was very freedom oriented in religion perspective. You had Buddhists, you had Christians, you had Muslims. Marco Polo very famously went into to some of the Khan empire under four of his sons when they split up, each one in its own district. It's fascinating. It's so, so fascinating it's because he's one of the few historical figures that for whatever reason, especially the West, seem to idolize. Because I always hear things about King <laughs> the leader. And I'm like, I mean, the way I, I view um, the legacy of Genghis Khan in the modern context, not in an academic context, but mm. in a more, uh, I mean, humorous context, it's always that Genghis Khan is the exception to the norm. Mm. It's like the Mongols are the exception to the norm. So like you would expect that an empire would collapse unless it was the Mongols. You would expect that this would sustain itself unless the Mongols were to arrive. So. It's uh, the idea that these guys had such a massive army and such a powerful horde that they literally were the uh, the exception to every norm, standard, and precedent there was. I mean, the way they sacked Baghdad, for example, they utterly destroyed the Islamic Golden Age. They they they, they threw the books in the river, and the river went black with ink. Mm. It was it was terrible, but. They were the exception to everything. Everything you thought was true, they proved it was not. As with regards to the Renaissance within the Mongol Empire, I do not know enough about that. Yeah, um, true. I, the way I understood it was that it was a Mongol horde, and they just collapsed into separate dominions after Genghis Khan died. No, no, you're, you're totally right. I think you're, what you're, you're speaking to the fact, because when the Enlightenment period was going on, or the Renaissance, the 1600s 1700s in Europe, um, it happened, it, uh, it focused around what, Italy and France, or they also call it the Voltaire period. Okay. And Voltaire is also a super interesting man if you've ever, yeah, I don't know if you've ever read it. I have, yes. He, uh, some, is, some of his literature, especially when he talks about that um, the only time when, when a Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian will meet, will be talking about business. <laughs> and they're all friends at the table. As soon as they leave the table, they're all, they're all objectives. <laughs> I, I, I second that. It's and amazing. So long as there is mutual interest, business or otherwise, you will make friends of every type, of every ethnicity, of every religion. The minute you lose mutual interest, it becomes, okay, why am I talking to you and why am I here? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something that's personal. It's just something that I think is a standard across cultures. No, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, how does that quote go? Uh, um, tr keep, if you keep your friends rich and your enemies rich, try to see which is which. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, this, this leads into a, to a larger question of, of our zeitgeist at the moment. Because I think it's fair to say Hollywood has won the culture war. 
in in across the globe. I think you know, famously, they always say everyone drinks Coca Cola and wears blue jeans. You know, and I'm interested in how now you're going to see China, of course, making their own Hollywood movies, um, South Korea with their with their TV shows that they're doing, India with their Bollywood, Pakistan with their Toywood. I think that's that's an, an interesting enterprise, and I'm wondering how the global zeitgeist are going to shift now between that. I think because English has become the dominant language across the globe, and because it's the most spoken language, or at the present moment, it's the most spoken language in the United States, it was just a thing of convenience for Hollywood to speak in English and make content in English that most of the world could understand. Mm. I think that if it were, say, uh, you know, um, the Japanese who came in and conquered everyone, or if, uh, you know, God forbid, if Hitler won the Second World War, I think mm. it would have been, you know, uh, a German-speaking conglomerate everywhere. So maybe Hollywood would not have that much of of, a, of an area to expand. Um, maybe they'd be making movies in German. Who knows? But the thing is, what I like about Hollywood is that they're very creative and they're willing to invest in their ideas. Interesting. Okay. So you can see that in the amount of terrible movies that are on Netflix, the amount of terrible movies that go into cinema. They flop. They, 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 they you know, they, they bomb. They're, they're terrible. But someone somewhere saw there was potential and put money into it. And an actor went in and read the lines and did the part and. You know, they did it. They produced it. It was terrible, but they took a shot. Um, a lot of the times, the ones that make it far sometimes are fantastic. They're amazing. So they managed to, you know, uh, capture the hearts and minds of millions for generations. So I think that's where Hollywood is able to, you know, secure a, you know an enduring legacy. And I think now, even if China were to become, you know, a mass producer of cinema, and I think right now they're the biggest consumers of cinema. They mostly consume their own content. Of course, yes. They're not consuming as much Hollywood. The same as shown in India, they're consuming more Bollywood than Hollywood. Whereas the rest of the world, I think, still relies on Hollywood for entertainment. So maybe moving forward, Hollywood is going to cater its content for Chinese audiences. Like, for instance, I think they, uh, they made some creative decisions to appease the Chinese government. I think it was, there was a... Um, Got her name. With Nat, Matt Damon's movie, where they made they specifically wrote the character that uh, China's um, China's Air Force, not Air Force, their their Space Force, yeah, saved the day, and that's the only way to get it through because China has a limit of ten movies that will enter from the West, and it has to have either a leading Chinese actor, a Chinese company working on it, or it has to be pro-China. It's very smart what they're doing. It's like okay, we're the biggest consumers, we will limit your access to ten. And we're going to choose, so produce wisely. So it ends up happening, all these different movies start trying to appease China. Mm. So you get tons of movies, some of them never make it into China. They're being shown in, 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 uh, in theaters in, in New Jersey, for example. Mm. And then someone there in New Jersey is going to sit there and is going to watch the movies like, oh, okay, so the Chinese aren't that bad after all. And that's one way that they're doing it, where they're able to garner influence. And at the end of the day, it's not the worst policy in the world. No, no. I mean, from 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 an an idea of how to control hearts and minds and, and get a positive message for your nation out, I think it's a very smart move. I, I'm conflicted with Hollywood's push on the LGBT movements. I've said this before, and I'll always say it. I, I don't think it's a smart choice. I don't think it's it's 
wise to have characters that are superheroes being gay and shazaki that I don't want to watch I wouldn't want to show that to my kids and I wouldn't want my father to have shown me that as a kid you know and I find it very strange that Hollywood is pushing that kind of content I don't know I mean on the one hand you've been shown heterosexual stuff your entire life and that is normal because that is the vast majority of people on the other hand you're being shown a disproportionate amount of LGBTQ content which is representative of a minority of people i'm not going to um say that one is you know toxic or not i do think it makes no sense to force something i'm just going to say that it's something that exists in the world there are homosexuals there are lgbtq people in the world i don't think it makes sense to promote certain ideology i also don't think it makes sense to combat certain ideology i i will i will put an asterisk on that comment because i believe for movies that are aimed for 10 year olds oh, that shouldn't be of course it doesn't matter and, and it doesn't matter if it's heterosexual or homosexual or any idea it shouldn't exist in that movie it's not intended Cinderella and the Seven Dwarfs should not have any romance whatsoever so exactly no, should not have, have any romance whatsoever um, I don't think there's you know an important romantic role for a lot of movies that currently exist I think when I watch Star Wars I don't really care about you know Luke Skywalker and, and Princess Leia or whatever. I'd care about the Empire and Darth Vader. Mm, mm. Um maybe I'm the minority, maybe a lot of people are interested in that. Um at the end of the day it's something that's happening and it's something that doesn't I mean, I don't have a strong opinion on it. Is that it's happening? Okay. This character is like this. Okay, I'm not going to have that affect my perception of that character or that movie. I think if you're going to have and not you but like anyone is going to have such a strong opinion over oh no this character is like this i will not watch it i will distance myself from it it was is it's etc 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 um based on your know, culture and ideology it's either that you have you know not a lot of faith in your ideology or your um or like you're reacting emotionally to it like i i don't understand it fully but it's just that how very political i like it <laughs> diplomatic is the right word <laughs> what, what what i'm trying to say is i mean there are people who are like this in the world and i think their existence should be tolerated they should not be you know uh, burned on stakes burned on stakes they should not be, be be slaughtered or whatever um if that inclusion you know, somehow makes them you know less ostracized fine but it shouldn't be shoved down people's throats it's like okay fine there's this one character in this movie fantastic moving on it shouldn't be made to turn to an agenda and if mm. people are going to react to it you know so negatively i mean what exactly is it in that that makes that reaction so uh, humongous or so so large I I think it, it it's that larger equation and play here where it does influence you know we don't give enough credit to it television radio 
print does influence people's thinking. So, I mean, this is this is there's a reason why it's been used as a propaganda machine for years and years. And most of the time, it's been a good mechanism of, of educating the public on, on concerning issues, washing your hands, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, uh, making sure to, to not divorce unless it's absolutely necessary, you know, c containing a family stability. Those were the kind of teachings that you found in TV. The concern is when it becomes destructive on society, you know, there, there, especially when we're talking about the West, I, this is not an over-exaggeration on my part, I think it, most people would, would, would agree with me if, if they see the level of institutions that have been dissolved, the trust in institutions. that all police officers are racist. This is crazy to me. Police is just insane, you know, he's in, yes. And to judge him as a collective, or if you go on Twitter and you read people's opinions, like um, Elon Musk meeting Trump's son, and yes. suddenly now he's yani, the devil. Tayyip, he met a guy. You can meet people exactly with, without agreeing with them. You know? <laughs> what I'm just trying to, to, you know, to clarify weird. is that it's okay to distance oneself from an ongoing trend. Mm. It's okay to not have an opinion on it. So if this LGBTQ stuff is happening, it's like, it's okay not to have an opinion, but it's okay to see, okay, this character in this movie is gay, fine. Um, same thing in Game of Thrones, for example, there are, you know, I don't want to spoil Game of Thrones to anyone. Don't, <laughs> I hear that, it's really God, Don't watch season eight. <laughs> uh, but I mean, there, there's literally incestuous couple for the entire show, they exist. And I'm not saying incest is normal. I'm not saying homosexuality is normal. I'm just saying that these things exist. And if they're portrayed in art, so be it. I can have an opinion on that art based on the conduct of those characters, but that's not to say, you know, that I support it or that I'm going to be, you know, the first one at the gay pride parade or whatever. It's just a thing that's happening. My, is, is, when This is an interesting topic because, I mean, Star Wars hadn't... Uh, 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 Star Wars ha was well, the very hey. first movie was incest. Exactly. Princess Leia with exactly. um, with her brother. With her brother, uh, maybe I think that was a fuck up on George part because I don't I think, think he made it up as he went along. Exactly. Honestly, honestly. I don't. He. Uh, it was first meant to be a TV show to begin with. Was you know? it really? Yeah. He never thought. He, I mean, the the studio didn't believe in it to such an extent that they gave him all the rights for the Star Wars movie. <laughs> it shows you. <laughs> And um, yeah, I, I think he, he didn't even know that, you know, the kind of gold he created. I, I never, I don't think he ever sat there and been like, yes, this is going to be a nine movie empire and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he has said on repeated occasions that this is it, the six movies, the trilogy and the prequel trilogy, that's it. And then Kathleen Kennedy gives him a check and he's like, we should make three more movies. <laughs> Money talks. <laughs> you say that, you say that, but he was so upset about the new movies, he called it, he called it uh, slavery, he called it white slavery. The new movies are terrible, <laughs> they're terrible. They're basically a repeat of the first original trilogy, but that's just my stalwart nerd coming out. Mm, mm, mm. Um, all, I, all the movies have been a repeat of the trilogies, wasn't it? No, I mean, the prequel trilogy, granted there was Jar Jar Binks, mm. He is a complete waste of time and CGI and money and presence and you should be utterly deleted. And there are, you know, versions of Star Wars on YouTube that utterly delete Jar Jar Binks. Mm. And that is something that's fantastic. That's a great addition for the internet community. But those movies were not rehashes of the first trilogy where there was Darth Vader, there was the Emperor, there was the Death Star, there were the Rebels. 
fine. The second one was, or the second tragedy had more politics in it. Yeah, it was more basic. There was like the Senate, there was the Republic, there's Order 66, it's fantastic. Then you go to the new ones. There's like not a Death Star, there's a star killer and whatever it was. And then goes and doesn't destroy one planet, destroys five planets. And then at the end, these guys go on a, on, on a beeline and destroy it in the exact same way as the first movie. Like, what is this? Like, who, who are you selling to? And then they have the first order who look like stormtroopers and they have a supreme leader. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's the exact same thing. Like, what, what are you selling me? But do you not feel that the political aspect, especially in the second sequel, not second sequel, number two, I guess, chronologically in film order. Yeah. That Order 66 was first put into there as a film franchise, as a concept, as a world building. And they've used that to death. That allowed for the TV shows, that allowed for the TV movies, that allowed for the books, the games. Everything has become because of, a lot of people hate that political aspect of Star Wars. No one gives a credit to how much world building it did for the franchise to build forward. It's been milked to oblivion. Thank you. Honest to God, I will say this on camera. <laughs> the Star Wars movies are shit. Yeah. Every last one of them, they're shit. It's just that there's, you know, that, that, that allure to it. Like, oh, wow, I saw Star Wars. I'm part of this niche community. It's not niche anymore, but like, it, it is what it is. They're terrible movies. I feel like the community is, in itself is very toxic because you, you, it's so divided in the line. One side hates everything that Star Wars has ever done outside of the original three. And the other side loves everything that Star Wars has ever made, you know? <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's so strange to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun as a space movie. That space opera is what George called it. <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> the only opera in that movie is the screaming of the Ewoks. That's all there is. Mm. He ever? Did he ever? Did he, do you know why he put Jar Jar Binks in? Because he has no foresight as a creative director. You would think so. I mean, he's a talentless hack. But uh, the, <laughs> the reason he put it in was because of Goofy. Because his favorite. See, now you see it. <laughs> now you see it. There's a conspiracy theory that Goofy was like a Sith Lord. Not Goofy. Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord. I could, I could see that. I could see that. For the fandom, definitely. I could see that. You can make, can make fun of it. Mm. And it's very memeable. But you did touch up on a point earlier about institutional racism, about the villainization of cops. Mm. I mean, I think institutional racism does potentially exist. Interesting. It could exist. I mean, like you know, implicit biases, et cetera, et cetera. But we shouldn't villainize people over a profession. That's just their profession. I mean, um, I can't attest to what it's like being a police officer. I've never been a police officer. I've never been in a situation where I could expect, hey, this guy could be potentially carrying a gun. He could potentially kill me. I was never in that situation. I never made that decision. So I can't sit here and say all police officers are terrible. At the same time, I saw the video of the killing of George Floyd. George Floyd, yeah. I've seen that there was a man, irrespective of white and black, I saw there was man one and man two. Man one had his knee on the neck of man two. And then man two was saying, I can't breathe. And then man one continued to press his knee on man two until man two died. I do not see that as a case of potential institutional racism unless there's a great number of Precedents, and there is a great number of precedents in other, uh, you know, legal structures of the state. I mean, yeah. and with, within that that country, within other countries, it does exist. It has happened, 
Um, I, I can definitely tell that, that Derek himself has committed a hate crime in killing this man. Oh, interesting. Okay. He, he killed him. I mean, it's, it's blatantly obvious. He was not a threat at that point. I don't know more about that context. I don't know further about George Floyd. I know that he had, you know, precedents. Um, I just think that whenever there is that situation where there's one man literally killing someone on live camera, that should not be tolerated. I'm glad he was, you know, sent to prosecution and all that. Mm. But at the end of the day, racism is an endemic problem in the globe, not just in America, not just in the UK, not just anywhere else, but it's something that we need to address as a civilization, as, a hum- as, as humanity. You, you raise an interesting point. I would counter it a little bit because for me, re- murder one requires intent or foreplanning, right? And uh, so I believe he either committed murder two or manslaughter, Okay. Uh, simply because you'd have to prove intent that he wanted to kill him. And I, I don't think that the man, even where he put his knee on his neck, was thinking to myself, yes, I'm going to kill this person. You know what? what I, I mean, just the repercussions alone. I mean, you have to be more than a psychopath to be like, I'm going to get away with this. It, it, I, and, you know, the police officers next to him are also partially in blame where, where they witnessed the scene and they didn't enact. At the same time, the danger of vilifying this one officer and applying it across spectrally on all officers, the kind of police you're going to be able to garter or train are not going to be the best of the best, are going to be the people who who either do it for an income or, you know, which ideally in a perfect world, you never want to have somebody who does a job for the money, but you'll end up having people who do it for the income or people who can't find a different position of occupation like the the remember there was a case where where the shooter in a las vegas hotel um and he was he was murdering a bunch of people in 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 that hotel and they filmed this police officer who was just frozen down on the ground he didn't you know interact he didn't do anything and they prosecuted him for failure duty okay where you know and you have to be a mensch you have to be human at the end of the day and I, my heart goes out to that guy because he didn't sign up for this. <laughs> you know, he's a police officer. He didn't sign up to SWAT. He, he never been trained of dealing with a crazy gunman who's got like MR-15s and God knows what. You know, this is, he was trained to, to give traffic tickets and oh, wow. drug, you know what I mean? How, how do you expect a man to say, hey, you know what? Mashi ma'Allah, go. <laughs> I mean, I think people are going to bring their implicit biases to whatever profession they're in, whether Mm. it's political, legal, uh, business, uh, engineering, medical. They're going to bring their biases towards everything. So, I mean, for example, like to to broaden it up a little bit, if there was, you know, particularly conservative, particularly Islamic, particularly, uh, you know, perhaps even Jewish or whatever it was in terms of your your religious background going into a medical profession perhaps they would not want to uh, deal with perhaps you know alcohol as a substance in treating which makes absolutely no sense considering the benefits of alcohol maybe there are people who are not going to want to treat women because they're men and then the opposite is true so whatever biases you carry in your life are going to translate into your everyday life and your everyday encounters Mm. so if you're a police officer and you have racist beliefs I would probably think that when selecting a police officer, one should probably want to vet for these beliefs. Now, how do you identify racism? How do you trigger, 
you know, uh, an acceptance or rejection of an application or a promotion based on racism is something that I don't know how to do myself. But if there is a way to do that, I think that should be pursued because at the end of the day, police officers should protect everyone and not protect some people from others because that's the beginnings of a discriminatory society. That's not something you should have in a modern state. So when you bring up something very interesting, there was, I forgot which, which FBI director published this information, but um, he, he did mention that there was a systemic issue within the FBI. And it was that, that black FBI agents were, were overly aggressive on other black really? citizens. It was, it, was, it was internalization of racism. So because a lot of females will experience this in that when they have a female boss, the expectation from that female boss is so much more higher and greater than if they have a male boss. Why though? I think it's, it's the dualistic of aspect of, of almost like that inner shaitan in the sense that it, took, it was so hard for me to get here. So I'm going to damn make sure that you're the best. And I have to damn make sure it's hard. And for I, I can only put myself in the position of, of that black agent. And I would assume whenever he sees a black uh, person who's, who's committing a crime, he feels almost like he's bringing down the entire black community. You know what I mean? So, so I, I think that's why the, the, there's this internalization what, what occurs. Thomas Swall wrote a fantastic bo uh, book. He's a um, black professor, uh, graduated from Harvard. Uh, he has a fantastic quote that I love saying. He said, the greatest thing about graduating from Harvard is that you never have to be impressed with someone who graduated from Harvard. <laughs> what about someone who graduates, from, who graduates from Yale then? Should you be impressed by them or not? I don't think so. He hates people from Yale as well. I, wh what university? Can you talk, type in Thomas Wall? I think he teaches at... But yeah, he, he, he talks a lot about geopolitical issues, especially uh, black community. And... It's very, very interesting. He, he, he makes a big case in that the internalization of, of racism where they try to help the black community is actually That's hindering. That's Harvard right there. Yeah, Thomas Wall. He, uh, Howard. How, uh, no, Howard. And what, where does he teach, though? He doesn't teach at Howard. Harvard. Harvard, sorry. He teaches in, I forgot the, the name of the university. He was a student of Milton Freeman. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, fascinating guy. I'll send you some of his videos. It's the, his ability to speak is incredible. Oh, so he teaches at Howard? UCLA. UCLA, yeah, that's where he's currently, I think. Oh, no, that was in the past. Hoover Institute, that's the one. Yeah, he's currently at the Hoover Institute still. Okay, so if he's at the Hoover Institute and he says that it's n no longer possible or, or, or um, requirement, shall we say, to be impressed by people who graduate from Harvard, does that mean that he is uh, impressed by people who teach at Harvard? Or, or what's the deal there? <laughs> I'd have to ask him. <laughs> but I, I think what his, his, he makes another interesting comment where he, where he says that whenever an issue occurs on a global scale, there's always a Harvard guy involved. <laughs> they're either the solving problem or they're causing, but most of the time they're both. So <laughs> So it's like a derby in English football. Exactly. Like versus Arsenal. Exactly. So yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. And he talks about that in the black communities in America, you have a better chance in life if, if you go and commit a crime because most of the state funding is pushed into reformations in prison. 
So you can get it from a, from a black adolescent's perspective, committing a crime, going to jail, the ability to get free education, free food, free place to sleep, although, of course, there's violence in the prison, let's not forget, but y your ability to exit with, with a higher level of chance of success in an educational perspective than if you are a black student who, grades, who has A's in his class. I mean, if that's true... It's frightening. It's really scary. If that's true, then this is an argument in favor of the existence of institutional racism because if a black man has to go to prison in order to have a better chance of success relative to a white man, what does that say about the opportunities that are afforded to black people who are not going to prison or, mm. you know, or you know, abiding by you know, Laws good citizenship or yeah. uh, principles, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, going to prison, irrespective of your ethnic background, should not be a prerequisite to your success. That's, that's exactly what he talks about. He says, if you look at the, the dollars spent by a state and how much of it is going into school programs, how much of it is still going to, to pro ID, pro, Excuse me. no worries. <laughs> Uh, Gesundheit. Um, yeah, and he, he, if you just look at just the figures alone, you'll find that a lot more money is spent on re-education in prison. <coughs> fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. I mean... I don't know what, you, what you're supposed to say to that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say to that, honestly. I mean, if, if the government is prioritizing um, you know, spending on prison facilities as opposed to education facilities. Thank you for watching. And can you move the mic closer, Danny? I think it's a little too far. You can move it as yourself, by the way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt. Can I get a cigarette and ashtray and lighter, please, Danny? Thank you. Thank you, sir. I think it's empty. No, I mean, Thomas Walls is, is a really, really, really fascinating guy. He wrote fantastic... He's, he's an incredible author. He has incredible insights. Um, he talks. He's he's a big opponent uh, to minimum wage. Really? Yeah, f fascinating guy. No, I mean, if we're gonna go back to what are we talking? We're talking about the prioritization of government expenditure on prison facilities as opposed to education. Mm. Um, from what I understand about the American school system, and it's it's frightening how much people in this part of the world know about the American school system. Isn't it crazy? Con considering that we are in no way, shape or form afflicted or affected by that school system. Isn't it amazing? It's literally the soft power of the, of the United States. I think it's because I watch a healthy amount of The Daily Show and uh, what is it? Uh, Propaganda Patriot is Act amazing. By Hassan Minhaj. Yeah. It's not even, Hassan Minhaj is, 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 is an American, but like he's from Indian roots. It's, to that, it's gone to that level where, where like all of us here are watching like the problem with John Stewart and all that, and we are much more aware of American problems relative to you know Khaliji problems, and that says something about American presence in the media, etc. Going back to the whole Hollywood argument. We're talking English right now. Arabic won't have any viewers. It's crazy. I can pull up my analytics and I can show you about sixty percent of our audience type is all American. Really? Yeah. Okay. From Bahrain reproducing. I don't understand how the algorithm does this, but... So Americans are interested in what we think about their country? I, I, it is... I don't know if what we think of what we country or because we're talking about topics that are structured in favor of American. Because okay. what is on Google Trends? What's Google search? Where does the feedback loop occur? 
Okay, I see it. I you see know? It. So basically, if we're going to talk about the American, you know, zeitgeist and soft power in Hollywood. This show is an example of that soft power. So just, Absolutely. it's not only that Hollywood is, has creative ideas and they're investing in those creative ideas and they're exporting them to our consumption. We are affected by that consumption to the point whereby we are producing content organically ourselves in a way that is palatable and consumable to the American audience. Absolutely. Even when we do our own shows in Arabic, Absolutely. they are done in a similar format. Absolutely. Uh, we, in Bahrain, they have that financial show. Um, Beban. Oh yeah, uh, Bahraini Shark Tank. Yeah, B- exactly. What did you just call it? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched a single episode. Uh, I, I haven't either, but we've had a few guests on the show who, who've both been in the production side and been the, the host. Oh really? Yeah. Uh, what was the guy's name again? Who, he did the Netflix series here in Bahrain? Samiruchi. Yeah. You know, by the way, he, he, we had a Netflix series made in Bahrain. Oh really? Never heard of it. It's, not, it's never heard of it because they fucked up a licensing. Oh, is that the, the, the Netflix? It's the one... These are the Deals of the Desert. Deals of the Desert? Yeah. I think, I think about a Kuwaiti show that was filmed in Bahrain then. No, no, no. This was a show filmed in Bahrain, about Bahrain, about real estate in Bahrain. And they fucked up a licensing. They said, listen, Netflix, you can air this everywhere else in the world, just not on the GCC. <laughs> Because we will air it, <laughs> but um, they couldn't get their shit together. <laughs> and and Dubai bling is everywhere, and everyone hates it. Like I would like to hate this show. Like uh, let, let me be a Bahraini who hates Bahraini shows. Like the Emiratis hate Dubai bling. I've talked uh, on this issue exactly. I mean, we t- I, we talked about this with with uh, Tamkin, and I had miss- I talked to them about it. And I was like, listen, uh, I, I'm either going to be moving to Dubai or Saudi just because. At the end of the day, how many people can I interview? How many? <laughs> I'm very glad I got on the list. Right? I mean, mashallah. Yeah, and he, uh, listen, I, we spoke on, on Instagram a lot. And I just thought you were such an intellectual shining light that I wanted to, to, to meet you face to face. And we can appreciate that. talk about poetry, politics, economics, Milton Freeman, whatever you like. Yeah, and he, I, I'd be very happy to continue more of these conversations in the presence or the absence of cameras, because I find you to be a very uh, edu- oh, educated dude. Thank you, I appreciate it, but uh, I, I'm all self-educated. I don't believe in institutions from the medicine. Really? Or did you not pursue higher education? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it, it would baffle me if you just said that I dropped out or I didn't pursue education right now. I didn't show up to my university. I did it all, yeah. I oh, you, you read your books independently? I, no, what I did was, I was in the UK, I was went to, um, so the way I chose my university was based on how many hot girls there were in it. <laughs> Yeah, I knew my priorities. I knew my priorities. I was like, I don't care about a piece of paper. So you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm a presence man. There are very, very, very politically incorrect comments that can be made right now. I'm, I'm going to shut up. Listen, there were Russian girls that were blonde. I'm not going to be like, oh, you know what? I'm not interested in that. Take me to some classroom with six dudes. I was like, so yeah. I take it you didn't do engineering. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. I was this close of doing marketing because of that reason. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And Marketing. Uh, <laughs> see? You know why. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> marketing and psychology. I know. I know. In the back of my head, I already know that. But no, I, I, I went there and I met a lot of interesting people. And uh, the rest of the time I was just at home. I was working part time and I just did Blackboard. That's how I submitted my essays. 
In fact, for my thesis, the, 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 the last for your undergrad, because for a master's you have to do a proper thesis, for your undergrad it's only like 5,000, 6,000 words. I, uh, you have to have meetings with your professors. Yeah. The last, the last meeting before the submission, I remember walking in, said, here's my papers. He sat with me, we talked and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, this is good, this is bad, blah, 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 blah. Standing up and leaving, he looked at me and was like, by the way, who are you? <laughs> So don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Like, hi, I'm Hamad. I, yeah. I, I, I pay attention to everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I didn't care. Yeah, I mean, as long as it worked for you, man. Honestly, I, I don't... I don't think a, a university experience does anything for you. I think you're better off at the age of 14, 13, go work a job. You'll learn a lot more. How old were you when you went to university? Were you 13? Uh, my first job was at 14. I uh, worked as a computer repair every Friday. Um, I had lots and lots of porn. Listen, this is my advice to you. If you're taking your computer to a repair, don't be like Hunter Biden. Like, Take out that hard drive. <laughs> don't, don't ever give that in. Um, because they'll... <laughs> we had, we had, so the first day I went to work, they, they showed me, they brought me in. They said, this is, the, this, is, uh, this is your station. This is where you're going to sit. Here's the PDF folders for how to do the repair because it was a Mac repair. And on the left of me were like stacks. And I, it must have been like two meters high of CDs, two of them. And I looked at it and I was like, so what's, what's in those? And he said, listen, you can take one of each from that pile every day and you have to bring them back. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, one pile are movies and the other pile is porn. And it's- They segregated them. <laughs> Someone went one by one. He saw the film, uh -huh. 20th Century Fox? Nope, 20th Century Fox, let's, let's go. go. <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I said, how do you know what's inside of it? And he said, you know, luck, luck of the deal. <laughs> this guy had a lot of time on his hands. He, he uh, I don't know, I'm even gonna pursue that train of thought, man. Habibi, we were a company of 15 people or so. Wait, was this before, uh, you know, internet? You know, pornography or, 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 I mean, I'm sure you had Playboy. I don't, I mean, I thought it was, I think the, 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 I think people just enjoyed the luck of the deal. You know, you never knew what you're going to find in that. So I think that's why. I mean, <laughs> there, there are some things in life in which I prefer consistency. <laughs> you know what? It felt like opening a mystery box every day. You never knew what you're going to find. What is this, Forrest Gump? <laughs> Listen, life is a box of chocolate, right? <laughs> Just you can't look at the back. I don't know what to tell you, Habibi. It was, it, was, it was a good time. It was a good time. I wonder if they still operate and do that stuff down there. I can tell this is completely not PC. <laughs> That's the beauty of being in the Middle East, Habibi. You can talk about these issues without getting canceled. We say anything anti-LGBT, halas, done and dusted. You're canceled, your, your life is ruined. Here in the GCC, Mali, Mali. I remember the GCC very recently came up to the position saying that they're going to, you know, oppose Netflix pushing the LGBTQ agenda. And I thought that was interesting because why does this issue require government involvement? I thought it was more interesting when I went to an Apple shop in Dubai and this lady was yelling at this Apple shop employee because they had the, the <laughs> LGBT like ban for the Apple Watch. Yeah. When I was, I remember thinking to myself, when I saw the whole thing, I was like, the CEO is gay. Yani, exactly. If, this is, if your problem is, Yanni, to that daraja, 
then don't buy Apple. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of everyday products we're using have some LGBTQ people on the other side of it. Mm. From in my case, situation, if I simply refrain from having an opinion on it, then it just makes my life that much easier. I can get the Apple Watch, I can get the iPhone, I can get every other Apple product, I can get every Microsoft Surface, whatever. And it, it doesn't bother me at the end of the day. Like what you know, you do behind closed doors, irrespective of your sexual orientation or identity or whatever gender you identify as if you're an Apache helicopter or not, it's irrelevant to me. Mm. Just go do your thing and just leave me the flying fuck alone. I mean, we as a company go to Torino. <laughs> that's an inside joke. If you know, you know. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where we hang out in. I, I, I fucking love that place. I hate all the other clubs in Adlia, um, mainly because I don't understand it. I really don't. I mean, what, what's there to understand? Because there's no girls anywhere. So, Anilish, why go to a place that's really going to smell and, they, uh, and people are just standing around not having fun? Go to Torino. What is it called? Danny? Torino. Might as well go to Torino. Place is clean. People are nice. And, you know, they're at least dancing. You know, there's, there's life. Not the record show that I had absolutely no comment on this whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you're disagreeing with me on that. I can't believe that. No, no I, I, I never said I agree or I disagree. disagree. Yeah. Turn off the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> Habibi, you get the edit. We can cut out anything you want. It's not Danny Shell as a kid. I don't know. I've been telling you. We, we, we go there a lot. It's, they're nice people. Um, but, yeah. Um, on to police brutality. Uh, we just finished the, the, the LGBT section, I think. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like you were just trying to cover every single controversial, contentious topic there is. For the West, yeah. But for the Middle East, people don't care. Yeah, I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people in the Middle East will be on board with it because of, you know, al-adab with tanzim. like, oh, yistahil. Mm. I mean, I think there are better ways of, of dealing with, you know, um, uh, illegality and criminality. I mean, if you're going to have a law with a penal code that's going to say, okay, this crime, this fine. This crime, this prison sentence. This crime, uh, misdemeanor, etc., 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 etc. It's going to be a whole lot better than, I think, chopping off hands and whipping people and, you know, throwing them in whatever corporate yeah, you get, dungeon. You're giving me flashbacks to Syria. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought I was back in Chop Chop Square. I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense. You're going to be beating people and decapitating them. and Draconic. It is very like, draconic. Like, and it literally, like, I think it's much more civilized to have a penal code and, you know, you know, law and just, you know, orderly, civilized, you know, way of dealing with these things. Listen, I agree with you. And, and I, I would love to see the world be more humanitarian. But you've got places like China who, who's like, fuck that, you know. <laughs> They put concentration camps for Muslims, so, and they, they deny it and then call them correction facilities, you know, that's, that's, I don't know how we can deal with that. I don't know how you step up and, and say stuff like that. And I, we've had uh, a Zionist Jew on the show, uh, completely Zionist, and I talked to him about these issues. Really? And I said, like, Israel themselves said, never again. Yeah. Yet you see China doing it. And he, what's his, your stance on that? And he's, he even said, he condemned it. He was like, listen, this is, this is 
khata and at the end of the day and i think it is to to prosecute someone based on their belief it's crazy it is what it is though i mean i think <coughs> going back to the whole topic of institutional racism things like this on a global scale do happen and they should be adjusted and rectified but at the same time there is this concept of sovereignty uh, you know this individual sovereign states have a right to conduct themselves however they see fit but then there's True. international law and there's culture etc 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 so i don't think it's my place right now to comment on you know the weaker situation uh with respect to israel and palestine i think the answer on that is very clear with regards to what's happening there because israel has no sovereignty over the west bank and gaza those are occupied territories according to the geneva convention therefore not according to them though <laughs> which is problematic um if you're going to you know do those things in what is regarded as quote unquote israel proper then that's going to be a question of sovereignty and you know self determination etc etc but in the occupied territories it's a different conversation because you are supposed to be occupying those territories which belong to another you know occupant you know the occupied people mm. palestinians so if you're going to go back to the whole narrative river to the sea palestine proper right of return it's a very complicated subject that requires multiple sessions of, of, of discussion it's not going to be answered in five or ten minutes i don't think the two of us will will, will be able to figure something that out that's, <laughs> that's been an issue for what almost two thousand years no, since only two thousand years well the christians went for the crusades all the way there i mean they've they've been <laughs> it's been it's been difficult for a long time no, but i think the israel palestine issue is not an issue of religion i think jews and muslims and christians and even the uh, believers of other religions the irreligious the atheist the agnostic they all have a place in the world right i think with regards to israel and palestine the issue realistically goes back to i think the 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 Sykes-Pico accords and the white paper on jewish immigration all of that happened in the 20th century so realistically it's an issue of real estate not an issue of you know religiosity maybe the religion has affected that to a significant degree with hamas and you know the uh, what hagenon etc etc but when it comes down to it it's a, it's a disagreement on land and who gets to live in that land well th- this is exactly the, this is exactly what we broached with him i mean he was part of um the israeli peace negotiation and i, I said to him also very frankly like i'll say to you Call it Israel, call it Palestine, call it United Palestine and Israel, call it whatever you want. A two-state solution doesn't isn't functional, and and people are suffering, and that's just it. And if if you don't really want that there, then find a solution. You know, either pay the money to leave or do something, which wasn't a topic, by the way, that they did discuss in Israel. But they were worried that if they started offering people to 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 move out or leave, that more people would suddenly come and then ask for handouts. It's a difficult. solution but just locking people up or 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 it's unsustainable it's, it's unsustainable there's got to be some solution to this crisis at some point um i think we as arabs do have a role in identifying that solution i think we should be at the table we have proposed a solution the rpc initiative i think that is as far as the two state solution that is you know the you know best solution on the table right now because it's endorsed by the Palestinians themselves and the Arabs. I think there were other negotiations that happened 
after the Arab Peace Initiative, I think it was Camp David 2000 and yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, as far as deals go, that was the best Israel ever offered. Um, I think some of them were squandered. I think the PLO does have some, you know, uh, corrupt elements. Um, everywhere. I mean, it's a very delicate situation with a lot of different factors interplaying there. And ultimately, a solution should be reached. It should be hopefully peaceful and diplomatic. But as things are going right now, what I'm noticing is that there are successive Israeli governments being elected who are more and more conservative. Mm. And that is not going to be beneficial in negotiations going forward. I think Bahrain and the UAE have done a, you know, a significant absolutely, thing absolutely. in recognizing Israel and that is going to help us negotiate more directly with them. That's going to help us convey our perspective more directly. But if the other party doesn't want to entertain the idea or the thought, who am I talking to exactly? Am mm. I going to talk to an extremist? Am I going to talk to um, someone like, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, not not Rabin. Hezbollah? No, 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 no. I'm talking about an Israeli leader. Because oh, um, Hezbollah is a whole different scenario. Hezbollah, yeah. they're not even representing their people. They're representing Iran at this point. It's 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 sad, really. But I think oh, Shimon Peres. Mm. Shimon Peres, I mean, he was you know, more able to negotiate with these things. And you can talk to him about these things. But moving forward, if I see people, what's his name? Uh, the guy who was currently elected. I know who you're talking about because they're, they're talking about that with the Abraham Accord, um, that the U.S. wants to be involved with it. And, no, and the, uh, the U.S. brokered the thing. Mm. Um, I forgot the guy's name. Um, he was recently on uh, like a fringe movement. Uh, it's, not, it's not Netanyahu, it's the other guy. He's very, very recently he's got, gotten involved. Uh, current uh, Prime Minister of Israel. No, that's, no that, that's Netanyahu. Um, I think his name was... was Israel key players, I guess. I, I, I can find it, I think. No, not Yair Lapid. Um, he, he was on the fringe for, for a long time. Mm. His name will come to me Benjamin... No, not, not Netanyahu, no, no. Uh, whatever. And whatever. It doesn't so matter. But I, I think what Israel is afraid of is is Lebanon, I think. Lebanon? Yeah. I think that's I think that's part of what their fear is in that, you know, Lebanon Le Lebanon. Lebanon has been destabilized for what, like forty years now? And they still can't get their act together, they still can't make decisions. You know, at one point uh, Lebanon was was can. Yeah, movie stars the, went there. Switzerland of, of the Middle East. Yeah, the Middle East. And it's, it's just been so mismanaged. And I've had people on the show who, who are from Lebanon, who've had businesses. Some of them have $5 million just disappear from their bank account. And their bank can't tell them where it went. Uh, other people have businesses there that, that people just broke in, stole everything, went to, went to court. And the court said, well, it's going to take us about 15 years to prosecute them. So how do you solve these issues, Yanni? I, I don't know. I would be more prepared to discuss Israel-Palestine than I'd be prepared to discuss Lebanon because Lebanon is just a whole other ball game with sectarianism and you know division. And of course, I, I want every success and prosperity to the Lebanese Everyone, people. Everyone, but I, I I don't know where to start with Lebanon. At least with Israel, I can say okay, Israel has the power. We can have to have a competition with Israel. With Lebanon, I don't know who to talk to. 
Should I be going to Tehran? Should I be going to somewhere else? Should I be going to Beirut? Should I be going to some province? I don't, I don't know what to do. It is almost like local warlords. It's almost as bad as Africa was back in the day when we we're talking about the early 70s and 60s when you had like warlords almost in every... Yeah, China had that. And China as well, yeah. But that's that's the that's the struggle that you find in, in Lebanon. And, and I mean, that that they had this the weapons stationed at, at a public yani, port. That's insanity. Uh, yeah, and he, how do you rectify that? Yeah, that's beyond corruption. That's that's it's such incompetence. That's, it's, it's incompetence. How? Yani yeah, kif? How? How can he sleep at night? Yani yeah, the level of incompetence has to go. Yeah, <laughs> from the very bottom to the very top. You know, in the Beirut port explosion, something that's that's. It's it, it's yani it's really it, it's it's harm. It's it, I don't know how to express it otherwise. You know, I have friends who who obviously got injured in in the situation, uh, mostly from glass from the buildings, uh, got in their face or or their body and shalzikida, and they were telling me they spent uh, hours and hours and hours waiting in the hospital just to have their glass removed to Munwijum. It's I don't know. I I don't know how. How is global world we, we would be able to deal with 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 Shahzai Kida and um, and it's a shame Saudi has of course banned travel to to Lebanon for the Saudi so there's a lot of Saudi investors who would love <laughs> to to put money behind any projects there but yeah it's a it's a whole issue um, I think earlier we were talking about uh, I think the what <laughs> <laughs> You didn't think it's going to be this deep, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I have seen your content. I know you can go very deep, and I know that there are lots of opinions and, and perspective discussed on this show. Mm. And uh, it, it's good to see the sort of dis, the sort of discourse happening in, in the GCC. Um, I know the, Dubai has a lot of it. Uh, I think we're lacking some of that in Bahrain. When I'm in jail, I'll message. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think Kuwait has that. Saudi's getting a lot more of that. I think, I think more conversations like this should be happening, uh, so that people are more comfortable discussing these things and you know having a discourse about them. Because at the end of the day, I think all of us should be aware of the world we're living in, and we, you know, should have some ideas about you know how to conduct ourselves in the time and 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 the place we find ourselves in. That's not to say you should have an opinion on everything, but perhaps those things that are relevant to you or those things that you can learn from, perhaps you can take that and apply it to your context. I don't think we as human beings have come to, you know, sentience simply to eat and um, watch fuck TV. It, fuck yeah. it, eat shit and fuck. That, yeah. that's, that's not what we're here for. We're here for much bigger things. The, 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 the three Fs, right? Fornicate, food, and what was the third F now? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, I'm sure yeah. it's very fun. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree Fart. with you. There you go. There you go. No, I, I, I agree with you. But at the same time, I feel like almost everyone's become a political pundit. <laughs> I, 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 am, I am not that, even though I've been described as such. I, I'm just the guy who, you know, prefers to read credible sources. That's all I am. That's, that, that is the most dangerous thing. I mean, it's, it's, this has become more dangerous now in the later stages of this this century than it ever was in the beginning of the century. Well, later stages, we're in the, 19, we're in the 2020s. Yeah. But the trust in science has almost completely been wiped. And it's because of science that's been I mean, this mishandled. 
all this money from corporations that were pumped into research studies to, to pay them to show results that were not accurate, whether it be fat versus sugar. Okay. You know, a lot of companies made sure to demonize fat and, and say that sugar is this, you know, wonder substance. And that's why you have a population that has the highest level of obesity. Yeah, I think even Coca-Cola themselves at one point said that you can drink our, our, our product and all you have to do is just do more exercise and you can be fine. It's not just the sugar content in Coca-Cola that's terrible. It's a lot of other factors in it in terms of, I think, uh, the acid content is bad for your bones and brittle bones, et cetera, et cetera. But everyone just thinks about sugar and fat. I mean, Coca-Cola as a substance is not something you should be drinking. That being said, I do enjoy Coca-Cola. So it's a thing that exists. It's prevalent. Well, it's, it's worse than that because, I, I mean, recently, I'll, I'll send you over the, the, the source a bunch of researchers and scholars from major, major universities, from Harvard to Yale, everywhere in between, were as a mass exit, mass firing, simply by the amount of bad data they were publishing as science. And that's a really, really dangerous thing when you start building public policies based on, on bad data. Yeah. On bad data. Yeah. And this is, the, this is the biggest issues that we currently face, whether it be right now with, with how COVID turned out with Pfizer, now that the European Union has gotten involved, and said that they wanted to have a CEO of Pfizer come uh, and explain himself. And twice he's rejected the summoning. Um, some of the reasons why the, Europe, uh, the European Union pulled him for a few reasons. One of them was uh, to, to find out how much they were charging each nation. They claimed that it's because of, you know, I would love to tell you, but we're contracted by each country to not be able to say what we, what we charged for each country rather than... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that was that was one of the things that pissed off the Europeans. Uh, the other one was uh, they were lying about the data. Um, it had actually zero effect of taking the vaccine of you not being contagious. There really? No. Danny, look it up. It was just in 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 the Telegram. What the the Telegraph? Telegraph. Sorry. Yeah. I think Telegram was a messenger. No, it's a messenger. App. No, no, it was, it was literally just—it was just recently published, and you can even watch the video where they ask Pfizer, and they're like saying, "Well, you sent me a video like that at one point." Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, and uh, the Pfizer even said it in the in in the talks in the EU talks and said, "Well, we we operated with the knowledge that we had." Okay, I mean, as then don't make promises. <laughs> as far as Pfizer and the vaccine goes, I'm just gonna say that I've had COVID, I've had the vaccine, I'm living now, and everything's back to normal. Based on that end result, I am a very happy camper. Mm. So everything else now is not something that I'm going to keep up with unless COVID comes back and fucks us over, at which point I'm going to be like, the fuck did you do? So long as things remain stable and prosperous right now, I'm going to fuck what's happening about Pfizer and all that. It's done. Habibi, you need to keep up with the Financial Times. Uh, uh, Pfizer just projected for next year's earning 15 billion uh, profits. Really? How interesting. <laughs> uh, how much how is stock? I should go buy stock. <laughs> you definitely should. You definitely should. Um, prior to COVID, their, their, their balance sheet was about 2 billion. Really? After COVID, 11 billion. I mean, the thing is, COVID has been beneficial to a lot of companies. Oh, like boy. Pfizer was definitely one of them, Johnson & Johnson, etc. Um, then again, I watched this film. I think it was... Uh, we saw this film. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's like eight, seven months ago, eight months ago. I think it was 
this guy decides to become like a salesman for um, what's that? What's that, uh, that? Cigarettes. Thank you for smoking. No, not cigarettes. He becomes a salesman for a drug. Um, help me out here. The the, the drug that's that, that's Pfizer, helped. the Russian one. No, Pfizer have a drug that's useful for you know for, for erectile oh, dysfunction. Oh, mal, mal 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 the one that uh, John Joe Rogan took. No, the one for erectile dysfunction. Um, erectile dysfunction of, of um, Viagra. The blue, Viagra, Viagra. The blue one. Yeah, Viagra. How do you know it's blue? <laughs> I got family. What are you talking about? I've got uncles. I've got dads. What are you guys? What are you t- I, I, I don't talk to my uncles about the color of. No, I not I tell you <laughs> in boarding school we used to crush viagra and also give it to, to a friend of mine in the street oh my god <laughs> you're evil you're evil <laughs> anyway the movie is about this guy who becomes a salesman for viagra and it's done by pfizer so i was watching this during covid it's like wow this is some amazing product placement whereby this drug that a lot of people depend on is now being portrayed as a great thing in this movie and now that I hear that their their profitability was just what, what their net worth was like two billion and now it's fifteen or ten billion, I mean I'm surprised that erectile dysfunction is only worth two billion. I was expecting it to be a much larger industry considering um, the demand for the product amongst uh, you know elder gentlemen. But I think one I mean it's not as, it's not like how it used to be when Viagra first came out in the early '80s. They were charging a very different number than what they're charging today. I think. Oh really? Like, yeah, yeah. I think it's like what can't be more than a few dollars in a supermarket. I will refuse to believe that it's, <laughs> that it's more than ten dollars. I don't even believe it's that much. I'd be surprised if it's more than two dollars. Hopefully, I will never know the price. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think so. With age, I think you all. We all have to. We'll all have to be on it. I think so. Definitely. Yeah, I mean. Unless, of course, I have that stack of CDs yeah. from back in the day. <laughs> that will be good. <laughs> I don't know if that'll help. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, that sucks when it gets older for a man, right? I think that's one of the things that women definitely have us beat on. I mean... Women don't have to worry about that. Women don't like worry of being like performance or any shades they give it. You know, I think that's why we go bold. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 yeah, you make a comment. Th- this is the stress. It's like, okay, today I must do this. I must perform, and then you don't. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. How does that? How does that work when you have two girls? I feel like you're ex- you're multiplying your if problems. If you find a man with three or four wives who is not bold, I will personally secede this entire argument and be like okay he is doing something better than the rest of us and we should follow him and learn <laughs> I'm from I'm him. yeah let's go I, I know a guy let's go yeah he's he works as a security guard let's go Se- should i want to base my life around a professional security guard dude i was i listen i was outside i was taking some pictures this guy comes up to me says what are you doing says i'm taking some pictures and then he's like listen I got three wives, and I was like, "Well, that's one wait, way wait, to wait, start conversation." <laughs> this guy comes up to you and says, "Hey, I have three wives." Yeah, really, yeah, really. That's how we broke the ice. And I looked at him and I was like, three wives?" And he goes, "Yeah, and a girlfriend." And I was like, "And but any good how wish you got no, 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 Filipina. Uh, she's the easiest one. She's just happy to spend time with me. The others always want shagla, shagla, shagla." Mm-hmm. And um, 
I don't know how he's affording it. Maybe maybe he robs from the mall. I don't know how else he's able to. I mean, a security guard with three wives. I, I, I mean, one in the making. I, wallah, wallah. The strangest man I've ever met. He was like, Shuf, I can't have a job And I thought I good. Huh? This hey, man has absolutely no darab whatsoever. And he said, I lost weight. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you saying to a stranger? Um, exactly. Emirati, mashallah alayh. Emirati. Emirati security guard. Emirati security. Emirati. In which emirate? When? In Dubai. An Emirati security guard in Dubai. Is he from Dubai? Yeah. Oh no, I think he's. I think he's either living in Abu Dhabi or Dubai. I didn't really. I tried to get out of the conversation. I wasn't sitting there saying. And now you're telling me. And you're telling me to go meet this man. <laughs> you wanted to meet him. <laughs> to hell with that man. Come over. <laughs> See him. Talk to him. <laughs> no man, that, that 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 is that is fucked up. That's Be like Yuba Shahni. Okay. I mean. I don't want to take advice from this dude in the slightest. You can meet my uncle. He's married two girls, um, 11 kids, and uh, also got hair. Not a lot of hair left, but he's also getting old. Uh, mashallah alayhi, he said he's, he will keep going till he had a son. And that's what he did. He just did, did he get a son? <laughs> yeah, at the end, at 11. Otherwise, there would be 15 or 16 I, or whatever. I, I, I have a relative who has done that with one woman. Mashallah He kept alayhi. going and going and going at long last. <laughs> A son. Khalas. I am done. <laughs> it's like, son and dad, that's really the motto. That's it? How many kids do you end up having? I'm not Six dad or, or some shit. Jesus. <laughs> but imagine, I mean, I knew, I knew a guy who had 13 kids with one woman, half American, half Saudi. Okay. Uh, mom was American, so I don't, I mean, she was spending practically a decade of her life being pregnant. That's crazy to think about. I mean, he had twins, obviously, uh, uh, not just once, but he just he just wanted to make sure that legacy survives. He looked at Genghis Khan and was like, <laughs> <laughs> is he still going to come and sack Baghdad, is he? I guess so. I guess so. I don't think he's, he's done there's, the 40 there's million There's not thing. much left there anyway. Unfortunately, oh God. but I mean, at, at, at how many kids and he's because I, I know the son and I talked to him. His name is Marwan. And I was like, so how is it growing up in such a big family? I'm I'm near the top of the age grab. They are the hardest the first kid. And it just goes down and down and down and down and down and down. He said the oldest one, although he's 16, he cannot sleep at his he could never sleep at his friend's house. As soon as the lights, the street lights are on, is he outside of the house when the street lights are on? Like complete strict. I, I don't think that's an elder child problem. I am the eldest child. I don't have that problem. The youngest one? Freedom. Freedom. Oh, we don't care about him. It's bizarre. Bizarre. That's what he told me. Well, how many, how many members do you have in your family? Do you have four brothers, five brothers? What's your I have three brothers. I'm the eldest. Okay. So all boys in your family? Yes. I have a brother and a sister. Are I'm you, the middle one. You're the middle one. Do you have freedom? Oh, I, I mean, I started working at 14. I didn't want anyone to tell me anything. <laughs> 14 and you've got a supply. You're done. That's it. Halas. <laughs> I, I never, I didn't believe in schools. Uh, my parents really had to force me to... to to, to even sign up, I was like, why bother? 
I'll go work as an editor. I'll go work at something else. Halas. Um, I think earlier we were talking about. <laughs> can we make two coffees, please? And can we get? Can I have a cigarette? <laughs> no, I mean the, the the reason I'm referring to it's earlier conversation right now is because I feel like we've exhausted. Uh, we can go political more if you want, but I didn't feel like I thought you were going to get worried. No, no, no. As far as things to quote unquote cut, um, I think like when you talked about like domestic politics in China, like Israel, um, maybe like the LGBTQ stuff, the pornography, maybe that's not stuff that should be, you know, publicize everything. I should of well, I can show you. I can show you. Dan has got a iPad right there with a keyboard where he writes time, like the time yeah, code yeah. and where to cut some sections. Yeah, I mean, that's the that dodge. We already pre-planned. <laughs> so it's like you, you guys know you're gonna you're gonna jump over the rails. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, if, if if I knew you were disorganized, I would have been uh, much more relaxed in Bidaya. <laughs> disorganized. I take offense to that. No, 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 not disorganized. This organized. Oh, thank you. This organized. <laughs> I thought you were disorganized. No, 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 no. You think it's easy hopping from topic to topic? You know, you gotta you gotta yeah. be like in jazz. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like as far as things to, to cut, I mean, like if I knew that this was the the atmosphere and and this was the the the, the interaction, like I would I would not be drinking coffee right now. <laughs> well, you got whiskey if you want whiskey. Do you want some Blue Label and ice? Uh, should we drink that on camera? I don't care. We can put it in a coffee cup. Can I get a Blue Label and ice? And can you put it me in a coffee mug? Halas, yeah. easy. Okay, I guess it's up to you. I don't care. Um, so we're talking. We're talking about like uh, on the LGBT issue. Khanini <laughs> wakif على واحد شغلة. And I have to. I I I have to make this point because I feel it's necessary. Yes. But do you really, honestly, want to defend a trans movement? Yeah. Uh, no, just pure blue label. Pure, pure blue label. Huh? Uh, then put some ice in, and then we'll drink it with a little bit of water for now and then it'll be frozen by the time we finish. There you go. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a full setup, I see. Absolutely. But yeah, you really want to defend that? Before answering that, I should probably say... Uh, You're a transvestite. <laughs> <laughs> that's a huge... <laughs> I'm overcompensating. Yeah. Oh my no. God. <laughs> That's why you talked about that dick and balls business, huh? The Viagra. <laughs> Penis envy, yeah. I, I don't think that's going to work but if, if I was like that trans, you know, that, that transformative. There's a few of them in Bahrain, by the way. Oh, I'm sure. Like, uh, I've, 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 seen, I've seen a couple of them. Um, no, but before I answer, what I was going to say was. Uh, you said you're going to Saudi or UAE at some point, right? Yeah, Saudi. Yeah. Saudi. Um, before that, I should probably want to uh, meet up with you for a drink or something without the whole setup. And sure. then that, that'd, that'd be uh, a very interesting conversation, well, I think. I'm going to Saudi because of Aramco and Sabic. That's why I'm going to Saudi. Uh, are you going to pursue employment at Aramco and Sabic? No, 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 no. It's because uh, Saudi wants to... So we've been in talks with them, and they want a financial show that is similar to Bloomberg. Really? And they want to, to have someone 
who, who can take over and yani, do it right. Oh, very and, nice. Very uh, nice. So we've been in talks with them. Of course, the condition is that it has to be in Saudi. Cannot be here. That's the condition. And um, so our plan is, for the moment, is just taking existing news sources from the Financial Times and Bloomberg and rewriting it into an Arabic yani, connotation yeah. from an Arabic perspective. Yeah. Because yani, it's no surprise that Saudi is not exactly happy of the reporting of the $2 million, uh, two, two million barrels cut of OPEC. Yeah. yeah I mean, they're not exactly thrilled about how the U.S. Yeah, and he framed it as this attack on the yeah, West. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and so they, they've woken up and they, yeah, and he, alhamdulillah, mashallah, ali MBS, and he's, yeah, and he, Saudi as a country has woken up and said, we have to have some control of the narrative. See, this is something I'm much more comfortable talking about than, than transvestites. <laughs> <laughs> well, most people are worried talking about political issues, to no, be honest. I mean, for someone like me, I think the beginning of this conversation, we talked about what got me into politics. Sure. And I had a, a very, uh, uh, I guess, comical response to it. But yeah. the truth is, my father was really into politics. He did like to talk about politics. And I disagree with him on a number of issues. So what ended up happening was I went and read up on you know, political sources. And at one point, I had certain ideas that I disagree with now. And I hope that trend continues because if I continue to disagree with myself from the past based on new information, it shows that I've been reading up and I've been growing, discovering new things and growing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think politics as a field is a very interesting one because it affects everything and it affects everyone in different ways. So if I'm able to understand these are the trends, these are tra the trajectories, that I'm more of use to society as a whole. And it's... No, I agree, I, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. It, it's more flexible for me. Like, I, I don't want to spend the rest of my life, and no offense to anyone who has any of the, the uh, forthcoming professions. I mean, you do you, maybe that you like that, and maybe it's not for me. But I'm not interested in, in medicine and diagnosing diseases. I'm not interested in, um, you know, building bridges or constructing, you know, buildings or designing apartments or fashion. What I'm interested in is politics. And I'm sure all these other professions, without them, I would be living a much less... Uh, fulfilling life. Fulfilling and enriched life. But maybe my role in society is not that. That's someone else's role. And everyone has their own niche and purpose. And I think this field is where I'm most comfortable. Well, you're very fortunate as well because we live in a time and era where, you know, being a political pundit or working in politics is also something that's possible. Yeah. You know, going back, if you go back along, just alone 50 years ago, your ability to get into politics was very <laughs> limited by the wasp that you had. That was, oh, yeah. that was it. it, it it's definitely an issue. Mashallah, ala Bahrain, you know, they, they've, they've really brought, brought in a lot of uh, uh, interesting policy changes uh, locally with the ministers, for example, with the election that they just did, the first yeah. one. You know, I, I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime, in honesty. And it, I think it's a good step forward. It does then open yourself up to, to issues like with the UK Methanan, where you have the ministers trading favors with other countries, which becomes an issue. Yeah. We, we, had a we had a lady on the show who works, a, she works for, for a consultancy agency that does, um, a, that does a, a, a money laundry investigation. Jesus Christ, okay. <laughs> it 
It's blue label, not Jack Daniels. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> this is how you drink it? You've never touched the stuff in your life. <laughs> Have a glass. Enjoy it. At the same time, I don't want my offspring to be stoned and ostracized. I, I, I'd love them for the fact that they're from me. We grew up in very different households. I can really tell. <laughs> me and me. And I said, I'm not a boy, but I'm jokes. Definitely, this part will have to be cut. And I said, What's when when Ali and my sister? تبغى تيجي تيجي لك يقول يبغى يزوج عبد قال طالع على وجهي قال عبد قال والله اذبحها واذبح الرجال وبعدين اذبح نفسي I wish I was joking I looked at his eyes it was just يعني this this old mentality I could see I swear, I looked at his eyes and I thought I saw, I, I, I thought I saw Anets. <laughs> and there are people like that still around. They are really old school guys. I, I know some guys, um, um, my stepmom, Abuha, Abu Muhammad, we're watching television. Watching NBC too, shells like that. Film, he's not paying attention. And then a scene happens, and it's uh, some guy with a black guy in a a a, a pool, say a hot hot pool, whatever they're called, the jacuzzi. And he goes and he looks up. I almost, I almost fell down. I was holding my belly. Oh God! I was lying on the floor, just laughing. He thought I lay. He got whooshy. And mouth will move quick to what I film I don't know how to how to react to that. Like, sorry, I really don't. I really don't. I, I mean, God bless him. I, I think the way to react to that is to talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, Abu Muhammad, let him be. <laughs> but there are a lot of people like that. Anyway, so we were talking about. Do you, th- do you see? Let's be honest with each other for this for this segment here. You comment on it, don't. That's up to you. We can cut it. I don't care. Do you not think an operation that happened in Iran was a Western operation? Which operation? The protests. Yeah. Do you not think? Yeah, any. I think what happened in Iran was that the Iranian uh, government. Uh, assaulted a woman for not wearing the hijab properly and I think the woman has the right to wear the hijab however she wants and I think the law forcing religion or any other ideology on other people makes absolutely no sense I'm not disagreeing with you yeah and that's my own personal opinion Um, diplomatically I should say we should not be commenting on internal affairs of sovereign states and as a result, I feel like this segment we're probably going to end up cutting. But my individual opinion is religion should be for the house and, you know, the state should be for everyone. Yes, I am saying that secularism has some merit to it. Um, with regards to the Western involvement in what's happening in Iran at this present moment in time, it's not unthinkable. The West has gotten involved in Iran numerous times in the past. 
they have installed the Shah in the past. They have removed Muhammad Musaddaq in the past. So the idea of the West getting involved in the Iranian affairs is not something that does not hold water. It is plausible. At the same time, this isn't a country that is minding its own business. This is a country that is engaging in acts of, you know, uh, destabilization across the globe. This, this is a country that is, you know, oppressing its own people inside its country. This is also a country that has the right to coexist with its neighboring countries. The, I think what happened in Iran is representational of the Iranian regime's inability to reconcile individual freedoms with religious, um, I guess, dogma. But also, it is an opportunity for any would-be actor to stoke instability. Mm-hmm. So, يعني, uh, social media and all that, I'm sure, plays a role. I mean, there's a reason why CNN was reporting it that much. You know oh, what yeah, I definitely, mean? Definitely. There's, there's no way if, if the U.S. involvement of it was zero, it wouldn't have been in the news. And that's the same thing what happened with 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 uh, with Russia and uh, Ukraine, in my opinion. Um, I remember 2014 it affected people again that I knew. Uh, funny enough, it was it was it was Jews that affected too, and this shows you the tight community of, of that religion. Uh, this was a lady. She was part of uh, that state that got annexed. What was it? Al um, that was annexed in, in Ukraine. In Ukraine, um, it was. Uh, I forgot the city name. It's not not Kharkiv, not Kherson. Uh, remember the, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. So she, she, her family was there. She was born there. Blah blah blah. She was in the UK studying, and she was worried that she was going to after stu- after finishing that she'd be d- deported. And you know where would she end up? And blah 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 blah. So she went to the synagogue. Synagogue found her husband, and she got married to a, a good Jewish boy. Um, irony is that she's a lesbian. He's gay. So the what synagogue the was happy. <laughs> Uh, we solved. It. We, we solved. It. It. We solved the problem. We, we we took two gays and we made them not gay. Not gay. Subhanallah. We cured it. We cured it. Everyone is happy, and yeah, and and they got the family out, and she has a British passport now. And <laughs> I mean, you know, say what you want, but they solve problems. So, and that was the end of that. I think Bahrain is not in an isolated vacuum. I think we in the Gulf have some of the fiercest competition in the world as far as business and attractivity of economic opportunities. I think Bahrain is not competing amongst it in itself. It's not competing with Algeria. It's not competing with Cairo. It's not competing with Tehran. Bahrain is competing with Dubai. I think... Interesting. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. I think when I'm going to come and think about investing in the Gulf, I'm going to think of Dubai, I'm going to think of Riyadh, I'm going to think of Abu Dhabi, I'm going to think of now obviously Doha with the you know, incredible success of the FIFA World Cup. I'm going to think of Kuwait, I'm going to think of Masqat. I am not going to think of Tehran, I'm not going to think of Baghdad. So when I think of the GCC, I think of the GCC countries, I'm not going to think of Sana'a. So when I want to invest, I'm going to invest considering that environment, which is why I'm more inclined to say that the GCC ought to further integrate and further cooperate with each other because that's going to make a better business environment for everyone and it's going to increase, you know, intra-investment for everyone. 
as opposed to me saying, you know what, I'm going to be better than Dubai. I'm going to be better than Abu Dhabi. I'm going to be better than Sharjah. I'm going to be better than Riyadh. I'm going to be better than whatever. I think we need to focus on ourselves and cohesion amongst ourselves because of that competition. I want people to think, let's invest in the Gulf, not let's invest in Dubai, let's invest in Abu Dhabi, let's invest in Manama. I think it should be more collective in that way. I think what you're making is a very fair stance. I mean, you, you open yourself up, obviously, to coercion and collusion, right? Because then you, you get sectors of the industry where then gets divided and cutted and saying, you know, we do this and you do that. Um, what the way I see, if, I mean, uh, if, I had a, if I had a king, if I've had, if I've had the, the, an opportunity or a second to speak even to, to Menek Hamid, I would say, quite brutally and honestly, you're not going to be able to compete with Dubai. It's, it's just not... It's just not a feasible, and B is not something that Bahrain inherently wants. You know, Dubai is not for Emiratis. We we can we can say yes, they have jobs, and yes, it's 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 a metropolitan. It's London. It's New York. It's not it's not UAE. UAE is Abu Dhabi. Yes. Right. I mean, this is as fair as we can get to that. Now, when I look at Bahrain, I I would I would echo what Sanya Janahi said, in that it it, it should it should be the crown jewel of two things. Should be the crown jewel of, of both med- medical education and industry. Segment yourself and invest in a very particular and fine field. Let Saudi worry about finances. I've said this before. Let let UAE worry about tourism. But, but if you have if you have Subhanallah, whatever cancer or medical treatment or whatever, whatever, forget Europe, forget America, forget Israel. Bahrain should be that destination. You know, really just pinpoint focus on that. And then what what you do by having by investing in that, you add the added benefit is that you have lots of properties. You have three times as much proper, uh, properties as population. You have a very, very safe environment. You attract all these people who are in the end stages of their life, all these retirements. Instead of the UK going to Spain to retire, come to Bahrain. You can get a beautiful villa home next to the beach, which they love. Exactly. And, and this is yani, this is the pinpoint. And as long as we're yani, sitting here and going, you know what, we should attract tourism, we should do concerts, have musicians come. This is yani, Yes. But it, it doesn't benefit your bottom line, you know? And in the end of the day, it matters. <laughs> your balance sheet matters. Exactly. I mean, people think the government has an endless source of money. It doesn't. Oh. And everyone keeps saying, you know what, let the government pay for it. it that's not how it works. Um, even, in, I think, when we think about politics in a global context, we always think about taxation. We think about, okay, how do I justify the government doing this? How do I justify the government investing in this? How do I justify spending people's tax dollars in this? That's how ROI political uh, discourse happens. I'm paying for this. Why is the government doing this? And I think this is what's happening in Khalij, particularly in Bahrain. In Bahrain, we're increasing VAT from 5% to 10%. God knows we're going to make it 15%. I think Saudi has made it 20% of Galtan. So I think we as citizens are now more inclined to say, hey, you know what? I'm paying for this. Why is this going there? Why is this going there? So, yeah, and it, it makes sense. And to build on what you're saying, I think you had an earlier uh, podcast where you were speaking about if you're intelligent and educated and you're in the Gulf, you should want to leave the Gulf. And I think... There is sense in that, but not necessarily leaving the Gulf. I think if I'm a Bahraini and 
I have thought about this. Like I'm a Bahraini, I'm 26 years old. I should want to think about, you know, perhaps moving to Dubai because there's more opportunity in Dubai. That's a fact. There's more lucrative positions in Dubai. And I'm sure plenty of Bahrainis my age or younger have thought about that. And I know people who have done that. For what's keeping a Bahrain aside from loyalty and family connections and friendships? For how long can a sovereign state rely on sentimentality for labor force and enlightened and intelligent labor force? For that's one point to make. And it's one question, really. It's not a conclusion. The second thing is, I read a lot about this idea of sovereign hubs. Mm. Everyone in the Gulf, Doha or Manama or Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Riyadh, all of these cities want to be economic hubs. If you look at their vision programs, 2030, etc., they're all very similar. I think Qatar is not even 2030, it's like 2050 or something like that. But the point is that they all have similar visions of what they want to become. And I find that to be very odd. And it's as if you're saying for the United States, hey, let's make six separate New Yorks. Absolutely. It's Indic New York, Indic New Jersey. New Jersey has value. It's Indic Chicago. Chicago has value. It's Indic Dallas. It's Indic California. Las Vegas. Las Vegas, exactly. Now coming Rasul and Bahrain had that opportunity. I don't think, you know, your, uh, you know, stances on particular issues should define your economic prospects. يعني إذا أنا أبي إن أنا أفتح الديرة أنا أبي الناسيون أبي الناس يستثمرون. I should not limit myself based of what other people think is permissible or not. I should think about it in terms of والله there مثل ما تفضلت they have the economics in Dubai oh, sorry the tourism, tourism in Dubai and they have the economic investment in Abu Dhabi and now evidently the event management is happening in Doha given FIFA and you know the the, the exhibitions etc are happening in Doha um, you've got production happening in Kuwait in terms of creative writing mm. you've got uh, Riyadh is now opening up to literally everything um Bahrain can be a center for, for, for healthcare. I know in Qatar, for example, they have Education City, they've got Georgetown there, they've got Carnegie there, they've got a number of think tanks there. Maybe they're going to focus on the academic route, the, philosoph- the political philosophy or whatever uh, can be there. In Tinif Bahrain, you have that opportunity to have a proper medical infrastructure and the Kain Arabian Gulf University and the RCSI. Maybe that's the way to go. And you, I, I, honestly, I, 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 I spent maybe a lot of time thinking about this. I spent a lot of time pe- talking to people about the economic structure. And I looked for a very long time and I said, listen, you know, uh, Bahrain is not Saudi. At the end of the day, you have limited finances and Saudi has, you know, it, it can try anything. It can put its money into anything and exactly. hope to, to get exactly. something out of it, right? I mean, they're the second biggest, largest so- sovereign wealth fund, or maybe even the first behind Norway, or maybe they've beaten Norway at this point. Perhaps. So, I mean, this is, this, this is where you're standing on. Medical only makes sense to me because there is so much medical already here. Mm-hmm. You cannot walk down a street without seeing medical shay. Yani, yeah. Especially in Manama or Um Hassan, there's a hospital, something of another, every hundred meters. Yeah. So th- there is there is that opportunity, and I know for a fact. I know for a fact when you when you speak to Americans who who work from who are medical professionals who work for Aramco or stuff like that, they will tell you, the equipment is number one. Yes. The problem is education, a skill. 
Yes. Is 30 years back. And then. So this is the falsa. Building on that, I mean, if we were to have that cohesion that I mentioned earlier, mm. if you had Saudi technology and Bahraini minds manning that technology, how incredible would it be to have that center of medicine, not just in Khalij, but in the world? Of course. I think as a collective, we're stronger than if we were as individuals. And I know for a fact in the Bahrain historically has been a pioneer in a lot of these fields. Bahrain has been a pioneer in medicine, it's been a pioneer in, in banking, it's been a pioneer in you know uh, economic liberalization. And when Pearl collapsed in what 1929 or 28 and then mm. we discovered oil in 1931, yeah, oil was a godsend. I'm not gonna deny that. But the collapse of the pearling industry affected us less than it did in Dubai and Doha and other Gulf Emirates. But the point here is that Bahrain has the ability to diversify and Bahrain has the ability to reorient and reorganize. Why don't we? But we have to also put an asterisk in, in, in this. When you talk about the site, not the site guys isn't the right word, but if you talk about the thinking capacity, well, not thinking capacity, a, a, a cultural aspect of Bahrain. It is very unique in the rest of the GCC. It was under British colony for almost 200 years until 1971, where, where independence of, of Bahrain happened. And even till today, people will argue with me, but, but if you have a consultant coming into any of the bigger companies here in Bahrain, and they find out he's British, they go, mashallah. Subhanallah. Exactly. Land Rover, how often do you see it on the road? How often do you hear people saying, UK? My point exactly, including myself. <laughs> so it, it, this 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 shadow of, of of the UK exists within Bahrain as much as it exists in India and Pakistan, in, in, in Australia and New Zealand, although they're still part of the colony or the Commonwealth now. Uh, Canada also has a part of it. Um, so it, this is this is a big issue that we need to come to realization with and and somehow be like yes you know we were part of the colony with the uk but that doesn't mean that if we have a consultant in the company that mashallah he's yani, this exactly. great guy and it's changing alhamdulillah because the younger generation wasn't in part of that yes. influence and i can see it now yani, uh, when i interview people most of the time they say to me i don't want to send my kid to the uk i don't want to send my kid to to america not because of the value distribution, because of the but because they don't like what they're teaching. No, I mean, it's interesting. The influence, I think, of Western education on Arabs is positive in the sense that you've got the approach to research, in particular in the UK, what's hands off. You go read, figure it out, come back to me and you did that you, you explained that earlier and you you read your books you read your sources you came to the professor hi my name is Hamad this is my thesis assalamu alaikum bye bye <laughs> that is a legitimate way of doing things just sit down and read and figure it out um, I think that approach is much better than any approach that's going to tell you okay memorize these things come to the test and you're going to pass that's, that's not uh, an ideal way of going forward. I think what you need is critical thinking and understanding as opposed to rote memorization. Um, with regards to the influence of British education in the Gulf, I think Bahrain isn't unique in that, in the favoring of white consultants, so to speak, because I have had this conversation with Emiratis. They tell me, no, Allah, there is an Emirati who is educated, who is you know, enlightened, etc., 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 but his advice or her advice is not taken at the same level as a Westerner. And I, I think that's, that's not okay. Yani, 
the Emirati is going to understand Emirati culture much better than any Westerner because he lives in the UAE and he is from the UAE. And with regards to the uniqueness of that, Bahrain and the constituent emirates of the UAE and Qatar and Oman were all under British protection up until 1971. Kuwait was... Uh, relieved of that protection status, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I think it was 1962 or 61. Mm-hmm. Saudi was never under that. The, they had a US friend, yeah. <laughs> Mashallah, Saudi has always had fantastic relations with the US, and that goes brings us back to now the whole rhetoric about the the, the, the coverage of the oil price increase, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that yes, we have been under British protection and not colonialism so to speak um, and I do think that these uh, states of the Gulf who have been under British protection are more able to you know collaborate amongst each other because of that shared heritage and I also believe that the constituent emirates of the UAE the seven emirates in addition to Doha and Manama in 19... 19- 70 and 69 were in talks to form a federation and the fact that we were considering forming a federation shows that we are we have more in common we've mentioned this earlier absolutely than than we have in, in different same dean same language same exactly. nas, absolutely that applies in the gulf more so than the rest of the mina but i think does have the constituent elements for a larger you know, federation. But if we look at it in Khalid in particular, the fact of the matter is it was considered by the ruling uh, governments at that time, by the presiding governments of that time. And the people were okay with it. And I think to this day, when you see people happy for Morocco and their victory in the World Cup, when they're happy for Saudi's victory over Argentina, even though they're not from Saudi Arabia or they're not from Morocco, it shows that the people themselves are collective. Are collective. They, they they identify with one another, and I think that's more true in the Gulf than anywhere else in in, in uh, the Arab uh, peninsula. Uh, not peninsula, but uh, the Gulf is is essentially the Arab peninsula. Saudi is essentially the Arab peninsula. I mean, uh, Saudi is, is an interesting, specific case, especially from a historic perspective. Um, if you look at uh, the first president who went and, and met Malik Faisal. Uh, Roosevelt. I've just recently, 1947, if I'm not mistaken, and Roosevelt believed that uh, at the time Saudi would be a great U.S. partner and a leading force in that region, and that's why that happened. And then, if you remember Black Friday, when the first time when the oil price for barrel went over $100, the U.S. even famously threatened Saudi, and many um, uh, Faisal said. We've, we, we are people who came from the desert and we can return to the desert. That kind of, this kind of attitude, now whether or not he was assassinated later from the US perspective is a, is a whole other animal. Exactly. Uh, I will be inclined to believe it. I would not be surprised uh, considering what Shalemrikian does in general. Yeah. Um, but they can do it, Yanni, if they can. And you just have to look at how they treat their neighbors. See how how Mexico fares. Yeah. <laughs> America, Which is, Yanni. America has been involved in international affairs for a very long time. They have been involved in Panama. They've been involved in Mexico. So the fact that America is, you know, 
uh, an active player in foreign policy should not come to uh, a surprise for anyone, Yanni. Uh, After 1947, prior to that, they had the isolation policies. Again, how... Exactly. <laughs> isn't isolation. that crazy how we know, Yanni? <laughs> Specifications with America? <laughs> the fact of the matter is they write down their history. Mm. We have, as the Gulf, we في المشوار الاستقلالي السيادي الا من بعد 1971 شور ابسولوتلي وي هاف يعني لس انفورميشن اباوت اندبندنس اند سوفرنتي تو درو ابون ذان ذا يونايتد ستيتس ذيف بين سوفرن فور ماتش لونجر اند ذيف بين انفلوينشال ماتش لونجر ذيف وان وورلد وور 2 فور كرايست سيك اند ذا فاكت ذات ام سين كرايست سيك يدل على يعني ريال مغتر يقول كرايست سيك يعني ايش دعوه But يعني, that, that's, that's the fact of the matter. يعني. I have a feeling I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. Tabal. U.S. is in fact, at the moment, one of the oldest countries in existence. Oh, you... yes, because of a lot of countries gaining independence from the British Empire. Exactly. Think, if you think about it for a second, uh, other than the British Empire, the, uh, the, the, the U.S. founded in 1776 as a traditional system where they gain independence, uh, as the U.S. as we call it. Uh, is older than Italy, is older than Germany, is older than Ger- France, is older than the UK. It's not an the UK, older the UK. state, but yes. not an older nation. Absolutely. Politically, they're, they're, a, a, a structure has existed almost since 1776. They have, I mean, Christ's sake, 50, what is it, close to 59 or 56 presidents? Can you look that up, Danny? Yanni, it's, it's, people don't really think about that fact is that how much turmoil the U.S. survived, including the Civil War. <laughs> how much turmoil the U.S. could have potentially been involved in, yani, if you look at historically, yani, without going into deeper details in Panama and Mexico and other countries, and considering the fact that they're going to be, inshallah, hosting the World Cup in four years with Mexico, showing the progression of political relations in that field. America was involved in World War One by trading arms with both sides. Mm. America was involved in World War II militarily in a more direct fashion than World War I. It shows you that politics as a field looks at interest at its particular time. It doesn't look at interest in terms of, well, uh, this ideology is better ideology, it looks at it from the bare minimum. Hatta communism with the Eastern Bloc, Russia and China, they disagreed about communism in Nahaya. Mao Zedong had Maoism, and then there was Leninism and Stalinism. They disagreed, but they agreed on fundamental interests, and so they, co- they cooperated, they collaborated. I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you laugh, so I interrupt you. Do you know where Karl Marx is buried? Please don't tell me the United States. He's buried in the UK. And oh, okay, the UK. Do you know, this is my favorite part, to see his grave, you have to pay five pounds. Bro, this is worse. This is, this is worse. Isn't that amazing to consider? <laughs> this is worse than having Che Guevara on a shirt or a backpack. Che Guevara has spent his entire life motorbiking around Latin America preaching communism. Yeah. The guy is printed on a shirt. That you have to buy. <laughs> yeah. I have a shirt. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Him, him and Karl Marx have, I mean, whoever owns his grave really, <laughs> really has something to spite. Please tell me his family owns his grave. Can we find that out? I know that China wanted to paint Homburg because he was born in Germany. Uh, they yeah. wanted to, to build a 10 meter statue in pure gold to Karl Marx. Is it Che Guevara's grave? No, 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 no. Karl, Karl Marx, 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 buddy. 
No, I'm curious to know this answer. Gravy. <laughs> uh, the tomb is owned by uh, Max Mark Trust, Grave the friends. Harriet Trust owns the cemetery. There you go. <laughs> okay, so it's going to... Wait a minute. So does that mean his family hates communism? Well, I wouldn't be too surprised. His family or the bourgeoisie? It's like, okay, fine. He convinced all these people to believe in a classist society, but we're going to be the upper class of people who want to visit the guy who endorsed the classless society. Corruption, right? Pro the proletariat versus the bourgeoisies. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to come back. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's so fascinating to me about what happened in the USSR in general, how Karl Marx's teachings even survived. Um, it is, of course, scary to any ruling class of, of you know, the Civil War of Russia or <laughs> the Red Winter, as some refer to it. It's... Well, the Civil War of Russia as in, like, the, the, the uh, 1917 Civil War? Yes, when they got rid of... <clears throat> the Tsar. Tsars, which is, you know... I mean, Marx himself, yeah, I mean, I don't think he himself was Russian, was he not? He was German. No, he was German. So I don't know how, how that, I, I mean, I don't know if he was part of Prussia, because I'm not well versed in my history of when Prussia ended. Uh, it included France and Germany and Prussia at the time. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, they adopted that ideology. And uh, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's so fascinating that that happened in fact do you know that i, I visited russia uh, recently for a wedding really yeah it was a beautiful place unbelievable beautiful women uh, music <laughs> was from the 80s or no? I, I know my priorities how do you but which university in the uk was this I westminster what do you look at me like that <laughs> what you want king's college <laughs> what do you want <laughs> it's in london for christ's sake <laughs> Okay, fine, fine. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Yeah, and what am I going to do? Sit and, and learn about economic history with four other dudes? <laughs> no, I'm... Hey, I have friends who went to King's College, and they, ad they admire it to the nth degree. Where did you study in the end? Uh, I studied in Canton, Durham. In Canton, Durham? Yeah. And how did you find it? Um, they weren't like Westminster. Let's put it that way. Oh, man. <laughs> you missed out. You missed out. See, I can see why you chose Westminster. I can see it. Habibi, it was amazing. It was a, it was a time to be alive. I sometimes think back and maybe think to myself, you know, maybe I should do a master's or a doctorate. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, if you're gonna be doing a master's or a doctorate, you're 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 enticing me a little bit. You're enticing me. Come, we'll go together. Yeah, let's go. Yalla, yalla, fulga, fulga. <laughs> what? It only takes a, two years, I think, in the UK. So I think it's either two or one year. No, in the a UK. master's is one year. A PhD is like three years. Is in the U.S. two years for a master's? Yes, the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have whatever reason. They, because an undergrad in the U.S. is three years. In the U.K., I think it's four no, years. In the U.S., undergrad could be four plus. Okay. I know this because I spent a year in the U.S. and I did fuck all. It was not okay. Um, but you didn't like it? That was some hack. Too much fun. It's not that it was too much fun. At the time, it wasn't the right place to be. It was Iowa for for for. for what the fuck? Lots of long girls, I guess. Yeah, whatever. Okay. True, cool. true, true. I mean, but you didn't you didn't enjoy it? There was not nice girls. What, what was the problem? The alcohol is good, or maybe with twenty one. Sah, I don't 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't always as liberal as I am today. Oh, wallah. Yeah. المسجد بال... <laughs> there is there is none there. I mean, والله <laughs> I guarantee they have it. Lots of blacks convert for whatever reason to Islam, which is I find it so strange. What is it, Yani? They find Allah بالسجن. <laughs> I think it's a very traumatic experience. I don't know why. Like even what was this? The boxer Muhammad Ali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He converted. No, no, Muhammad Ali was a Muslim before he converted. Really? No, no, that makes no sense. No, that doesn't make sense. He at all. was a Muslim before going to prison. But he was a but before boxing, he was still. I don't remember his original name. Zin, zin. I think this is the part we can keep in because everything we just said was fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Muhammad Ali as a boxer. He, I think, revolutionized what it means to be, you know, a handsome black man in America. At that time, it was not, yeah, it was not okay for someone to be from his ethnic background and that confident and that comfortable in his character. Muhammad Ali proved that you can come from adversity, you can believe in Islam. And you can be very good at your craft. In fact, the greatest at your craft. And he just revolutionized not just boxing, but sport in general for the underdog. Mm. And he criticized boxing. He thought boxing was an elitist sport. He thought that boxing was a bunch of, and I quote, white people coming to watch, quote, niggers fight. Mm. He, he said that. Mm. The, he had his reservations when he partook in it, I guess, because of, the contingencies of his time. I think at, the, at one point he won the gold medal in the Olympics and then he came back wearing the gold medal to go and eat at the diner in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm. And he went into the diner and they refused to serve him at the diner. What and a time to be alive. Because, because, he was, because he was black. So he left the diner and chucked the gold medal in the river because he felt like the medal meant nothing if he didn't have his own civil rights. The, the problem of racism in America at that time was real and it was felt. And being a person like Muhammad Ali who had the, not audacity, but the brazenness to come up and say, hey, you know what? I am the greatest at my craft and I come from this ethnic background and I believe in this minority religion. And I'm in this country. Granted, he believed in the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad was not the role model in the slightest. Mm. The fact that he had the confidence to change his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali as a revolt against the established order, slavery, etc., saying that was a slave name, saying that his original religion from Africa is Islam, it shows, one, the soft power that Islam has over a lot of minority populations and the ability of those minority populations to embrace Islam as a form of identity reclamation. Well, this is really, really interesting because what you're talking about is the narrative that is ensued by a lot of um, the coast thinking. Because if you listen to Thomas Wall again, who, who's, a, who's a fantastic guy on race relationships, he can quote you and he, he makes an observation that the, that the red states, uh, the, the, is the separation of, of color and race was far less than, than, than a democratic states. And although we have this narrative in our head that it was the Republicans that, that were these evil villains, it, it wasn't. It, it was a Democrat. Because even today, if you go to universities in America, they have started introducing uh, 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 segregation again. 
Now they have all black dormitories. And it's, the idea behind it is what they say, we're protecting black people from, from the whites. But in reality, what you're doing is you're creating segregation, but you just fancy idiots. And, and this is, comes to liberalism again. It's, it's interesting. Matter what you're saying makes sense. I think, <clears throat> I don't understand the, uh, the all black dormitories. It's a thing. I know it's a thing. I've seen it used as an element of, you know, quote unquote power and uh, this, this Netflix show called Dear White People. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I've watched it from beginning to end. I had my reservations about it. I had my disagreements with it. In that show, they showed that, you know, the all black dormitory was a source of power. I don't fully understand it. I'm not involved in that race disagreement or that civil rights issue. Mm. So I don't think I can comment on it fully, mm. considering my background. Mm. Um, I know I wouldn't be allowed admission into that dormitory to begin with. Habibi, let me put a pin in that. You think of yourself as white. So did I at one point in my life. And only when I went and worked in America did I realize they don't think I'm white. Thing is, in America, Arabs are considered white. Wallahi, I swear. Legally speaking, we are white. I swear to God, I was working in the South and this didn't happen to me once or twice. This is just an outlier. They referred to me as the son of a sand nigger. I have been called a sand nigger. Exactly. I have been called a terrorist. Exactly. I have been called Osama bin Laden. I have been called all of these things. Exactly. And I continue to live to tell the tale. Exactly. But the fact of the matter is, legally speaking, I think it's because of a decision that was taken in the 1920s or 30s in the United States, the Syrian immigrant argued that he only fits into the category white. And that worked. I think there's a movement to make a box for Arab, but as far as civil rights is concerned in the United States, I think white is particularly conducive to our interests right now. I would not like to be checking a box for someone in Texas or some other uh, state to say, hey, look, I found the sand nigger. No, no. I mean, my name is Muhammad, so I will be found out eventually. Habibi, Muhammad, I qasam billah. You've experienced it and so have I. And work, people would refer, they, I would say, where are you from? Saudi. Oh, uh, your dad is a son of, you must be a son of a sand nigger. And I go, what are you talking about? And I thought to myself, kul hayati abyad. I thought to myself as a white guy. In fact, when I was a kid, I never wanted to go to the sun because I shifted flam or shift, the hero's always being white. I was opposite. I used to go into the sun because I loved the sun. I was completely upset. I saw my dad, my dad dark skin. So this is American يعني, uh, thinking. And I remember being shocked when my friends you're not white, buddy. And I went, what are you talking about? He said, when you go to the airport, do you get stopped or not? And I go, and I get stopped. <laughs> Random selection. Yeah. And that's when it clicked in my head. And I was like, well, shit. <laughs> Bro, it's like if they find a guy called Muhammad, Hamad, Ahmed, Abdullah, all of these people are in the get stopped list. All of us. But thankfully, yani, for, for uh, certain reasons, I'm no longer on that list. Oh, yeah? <laughs> you've, got the, you've got the beautiful uh, fucking diplomat passport at now, or are you still fucking rocking the normal passport with everyone else? You can only say, what are you worried about? <laughs> well, it, it, tell me, is it true? Do you have to change your diplomat passport every five years? I mean, it does expire, yeah. It's not like a normal passport where you can keep it for like 10, 50. I think it's 20 years, no? 
No, I mean, I think mine expires in 2024, 2025 or some shit. Yeah, because my dad got offered the diplomat one and he said he had to get it changed every yeah, yeah. He said, well, uh, But does the Saudi diplomatic passport have the same advantages in terms of visa exemptions as the regular passport? I would imagine so, no. It's still a diplomat passport, no? 